Throughout history, free thinkers have outraged the religious with their wacky ideas about the virtues of free speech, reason, and of course, eating babies. Now, God is dying, and it's time to dispose of his remains. From the pits of hell, Satan sends two puppets of the imperialist West and the Zionist Jews against God, Islam, and tiny kittens to bring you their propaganda and conspire for a new world order. This is Secular Jihadists for a Muslim Enlightenment with Ali Rizwi and Armin Navabi. Hello, everybody. Welcome to another episode of Secular Jihadists uh, for a Muslim Enlightenment. My name is Ali Rizvi, and with me is Armin Navabi. Uh, we are co-hosts of this podcast. Armin, how are you today? Good. How are you? All right. I'm really good. I'm, I'm good. And um, uh, we have a... Uh, so joining us today, actually all the way in the UK. So what happens is that, you know, we're all in different time zones. So whenever we do these UK podcasts, it's always... Uh, I guess really crazy. So thank you for everybody, all three of us, everybody you know, on, on this timeline for who've made timing compromises and are up at odd hours of the day or night um, for joining us. We have with us um, a very special guest, uh, someone I admire a lot since I saw him speak at the secular conference that happened last year in London, uh, organized by Mariam Namazi and the Council of Ex-Muslims of Britain. Uh, it's uh, Jimmy Bangash. Jimmy, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Thank you for having me. And, right. So, uh, yeah. Yeah. So yeah, it, it is right over <laughs> there. Um, and uh, well, you know what? As long as you make it in time for the gym. Um, and <laughs> so we, so, so Jimmy is, uh, Jimmy's a gay British Pakistani ex-Muslim and an activist member of, uh, the council of ex-Muslims of Britain. Yeah. You know, he grew up in a traditional Pashtun family in London. Pashtun is the group of people on the Northwest, uh, border of Pakistan. Um, that's where his family came from. Uh, he grew up in London where he stood in ardent opposition to what he saw in his community, which is uh, the patriarchy and the misogyny that he saw in his community. Uh, he's a poet. He's a writer. Uh, he's a very passionate and very compelling public speaker. Um, he focuses on Islamic patriarchy. He focuses on the experience of gays and, and the LGBT um, uh, community in part of the Muslim community. Um, he recently contributed a chapter to a, a book called Leaving Faith Behind, um, which chronicles the stories of several ex-Muslims. So several ex-Muslims have written uh, chapters in that book. And uh, he's also a co-founder, an, in, an integrative coach at integratedwellness.co.uk. And, and we've put the link for that in the description. And yeah, he's just very passionate, very articulate. He's very inspiring, and he has certainly inspired both of us. And one last thing, this introduction that I wanted to mention, Jimmy, is that you're working with our our friend Yasmin Mohammed um, for the Free Hearts, Free Minds campaign, uh, which provides uh, emotional and psychosocial support to uh, people in the ex-Muslim community as well. And I, I, I've heard that that you've been doing really, really great work with that, and it's probably related to. Yeah, it's specifically for people who are in Muslim-majority countries, so they don't have access to have um, 
uh, I guess, the type of support that they need because they're ex-Muslims in Muslim-majority countries, whereas ex-Muslims in the UK or in the West have got more access to support because they can be out about their apostasy. Mm -hmm. In Muslim-majority countries, there's not this ability to have conversations with people about how you're feeling or maybe about the reasons for your depression or your, your anxiety. You can't be overt about it. So um, we had the same idea. In Can you bring your microphone countries. closer a little bit? Sorry. So we had the same idea in two different countries, um, like Yasmin and I, about working with people who are experiencing challenges in their life because of their apostasy. Uh, and we set up the scheme. And so uh, Yasmin really set about it. and She got it organized and set up. And we started working with people in Muslim-majority countries now, and we're offering them support. It's a brilliant scheme. Yeah, it's, it's a completely funded by uh, donations. Uh, but I guess you guys can put the link in the bottom so people can read more about it, or we can talk about it more later if you want to. Right. No, no, no. We're definitely putting the link in, and we will come to that later. Um, and but what I, what I wanted to kind of uh, start with here is that uh, a lot of people, a lot of our audience, many of them probably don't know that. The experience of being Muslim or ex-Muslim, in the, um, and being gay, right? So, so this is something that you grew up with. You grew up in a Muslim family, so you saw what it was like being gay in a Muslim uh, community, um, or, or as part of as uh, as being a Muslim. But then you also, after you left Islam, you're also an ex-Muslim, right? So you, you had to come out as an ex-Muslim, and you also came out as gay at some point in your life, and you know that's a that's an experience I think a, a lot of us aren't familiar with firsthand. So if you could go into that and just start from the beginning and lead us through uh, what your life was like, what your, where your family was from, and, and how all of that went about. Yeah, so that could be quite a long story. So um, maybe but I'll accelerate a, it a bit. Uh, um, don't, don't take it. To, it's a podcast, so we've got okay. time. We want to hear it, yeah. So I think for me, when I was growing up in a Muslim family, and um, unisexuality is a funny thing, right? So you, I think a lot of straight people always ask you, oh, when did you realize you were gay? And uh, a good answer to that is about the same time you realized you were straight. <laughs> it's like, it's not, it's not something that, that, you know, you I was four. <laughs> well done, well done. <laughs> Maybe it's not the same answer then. <laughs> so I think it's a gradual, it's a gradual occurrence. Um, and some things in my youth became apparent, and I don't know how they became apparent. So they became apparent that this wasn't okay. Yeah. So it was really apparent at a very young age, uh, like nine, ten years old, that this wasn't okay. That I wanted to play even younger than that, that I wanted to play kiss chase with the boys. I didn't want to chase after the girls. Mm -hmm. um, and, but that wasn't okay. Uh, and I don't know how I knew that that wasn't okay. I just knew it wasn't. Um, and then um, bringing that home to, to a Muslim family as I started entering into my teenage years, and it became more and more difficult to... Uh, we've lost somebody from the call. Is that okay? Was that planned? Is that scheduled? No, no, just, it, uh, he's going to come is back. Is it too gay already? He's scared of Ali, he's back. So, Sorry? Ali, did it get too gay for you? Oh, yeah. No, no, no I had a technical glitch and it told me there was an error, so I dropped off and I came back on again. All right, all right. So just I couldn't wait to get back on, by the way. <laughs> That's how gay I am. All right? At least in solidarity. <laughs> so... So I think for me, I've completely lost my thread. So um, 
Yeah, so I think in the Muslim community, like, um, it was really apparent at some points to me, like, coming into, coming to the point where it was increasingly difficult to deny that I was gay to myself. So on that journey of, uh, of, of learning that I was gay, you know, there was a massive stage of denial about it. And I think for a lot of gay people, there is. And you try and rationalize it as actually, I don't fancy those boys. I just want to be like them, or I just want to be their friends. Like maybe if you're looking at other guys in school, that's how you would rationalize it to yourself. And then because I had the religious component uh, within my family about being Muslim and um, Islam being so condemning of homosexuality, that um, made me want to go into denial even more. It presented less opportunity to to come to terms with my sexuality. Mm-hmm. But, you know, there was a point in my life, so my, my family is not uber-religious, they're not, none of my sisters, uh, and it's hard, I know it's hard to, 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 to measure what that means to different people. I guess some indicators are that none of my sisters wear hijab, like they don't, uh, my mom doesn't wear hijab, she would dress in a very Pakistani way, she would wear dupatta, which is like the loose flowing headscarf that uh, women in uh, South Asia often wear. But nonetheless, homophobe, um, homosexuality in, in Muslim communities, you might as well be from a fundamentalist, Islamist type family, because it's just condemned um, as, a, as a default position within mm-hmm. our society. So, Jimmy, just to, I guess, add to this, and just to, uh, when, uh, around that time, you, you know, you and I are close to the same age, so, you know, mm-hmm. I think a lot of our growing up was in the 80s. Uh, so, wasn't this just overall in the community in general? Just everybody's homophobic. At that time, I remember growing up, um, and I, I was telling you this before, you know, just using words like faggot was so common just in school with kids, whether they were Muslim, whether they were white, whether it, it didn't matter. It was thought of, uh, so So was it a, uh, did you notice a difference? Did you feel that the the Muslim community was more intense about it? Or was it just sort of like the way the atmosphere was overall, especially in the 80s with AIDS and all of that? Yeah. So definitely, I felt the Muslim community was worse about it. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. And I think you're right. Growing up, people were more homophobic than they are now. Completely. I think though that when I hit my teens, uh, and you know, so I would have started working and entering the professional world, whilst and also uh, so part time, but was also at university full time. Society had made some traction around homophobia by that point, by my early 20s, yeah? However, Islamic society had not, like diaspora Islamic society had not made any traction, I would say, um, around that uh, homophobia in in our community at all. Um, So there was this clear distinction, actually, as I became older. When I was younger, so when I was thinking about when I was like, 12, 13, 14, 15, 16. Yeah, society was homophobic. School was a homophobic place. But when you grow up Muslim, even if you're not that practicing, you know, there's certain tenets that you're taught to believe. And one of them is that there is God, that Allah is watching everything you do. And there are some core sins. There are some really core at the heart of Islam sins that are not okay. And homosexuality is one of those. 
So even if you're not praying five times a day, even if you're fudging your Ramadan, like eating at school, but then going home and pretending that you've been fasting or to your parents, like that is more acceptable than being gay because there's just a universal condemnation around homosexuality or that's definitely the sense that you get. Right. Um, even even among the most moderate ones, there's a huge um, homoph homophobia is very common, right? Yeah, completely. So, so, and I think where we do see in, in, in diaspora communities in the West, where we do see some progressive notions around homosexuality, these are very recent phenomenons. You know, they're very, very recent phenomenons. They're not, they haven't been around for like 20 odd years. Um, so even in, when, I, when I was hitting university, there, the homophobia in our community was still there. But when I was growing up as, as a gay person in the Muslim family, certain things became apparent to me. And one of them was, you're going to lose your family at some point. That was completely clear. Like, as soon as your family know that you're gay, you're going to get disowned. I was really clear on that. And I think maybe that impacted how much of a relationship I started to have with my brothers. So I found myself uh, pulling away from the relationships with my brothers and not really uh, being as close to them as perhaps I could have because this sense of inevitability of a, some cataclysmic event that was going to occur that would have me ostracized from my family, it was going to happen. So there was some sense of mitigating that by not getting too attached to them. Um, there was a definite fear of, um, and I think in the Muslim community, for gays of Muslim heritage, Islam and homosexuality are intrinsically linked with fear, intimidation, violence, and frequently, too frequently, death. So for me, there was this worry about, are you going to make it out alive? Like when they find out, are you going to make it out alive? Um, and uh, and I grew up in a very uh, patriarchal, misogynistic household that was full of violence towards women. Well, it was full of violence anyway, but so much of that violence was directed towards women, and um, and and so I I was aware that violence was certainly an option of a way of dealing with dissent and non-conformity. So when I thought about, oh, my brothers are going to find out one day, my dad's going to find out that I'm gay one day, I was genuinely concerned about whether I would make it out of that alive or physically unharmed. Yeah. Jimmy, how, how many brothers do you have? Can you tell us something about your family, of your parents, and you mentioned sure, your brothers? Sure, sure. So I had, uh, so there was five boys, two girls, and then my mom and dad. And I was the youngest. So, of course, also being the youngest of five boys, there's, uh, uh, in terms of physicality, I was always the smallest as well, right? Because everyone's older than me. And so they were always, as a child, I was, I was the smallest in terms of physical build as well. And when you grow up around violence, I think sometimes you're aware of how, how small your stature can be compared to other people because, um, that can give you, uh, give you or take away an edge in terms of a battle. So I grew up with five older brothers and two older sisters. And um, the oldest child was a male, and then it's the two girls, and then uh, the boys, the rest of the boys after that. Um, 
And uh, yeah, so that was that was quite a frightening thing to have to worry about. But rather bizarrely, as I grew older, and I looking looking back now, it wasn't always so evident. But at the time, where I didn't understand why I was doing things. You know, I would dye my hair blonde. I would, I'd have books like The Greatest Taboo on the shelves in my room, which is. Um, a book about being black and gay. And I could see now, looking back, I can see that in my 20s, I wanted this secret to come out, but I wasn't able to articulate it because I didn't feel like I was able to have that conversation. But the closet became too much for me. And so on some unconscious, subconscious level, I started taking actions that would have me be outed to my family. I, I, I guess this is, yeah, I guess this is a, a bit of an obvious question, but just to hear it from, from you, um, when you say the closet became too much for you, how, how so? What was it that you, uh, I mean, rather than just staying in the closet and yeah. keeping your family, what made you make the choice to come out? So I didn't come out. I didn't come out. So um, I was outed by uh, somebody I was seeing at the time. They text one of my brother's friends and they were like, Holy shit. Uh, I'm Jimmy's, yeah, I, I'm Jimmy's boyfriend. I haven't seen him for two weeks. Do you know where he is? Can you ask him to get in touch with me? It was a bit of an accident because I'd saved a few friends' mobile numbers in my boyfriend's phone at the time. And so he just did a bit of mass text to the people he didn't recognize. But that's how my brothers found out, right? What happened? Uh, so I was called into a room one day. Uh, this is actually, um, I, I've written about it in the book, this specific scene. And um, I was called into a room one day, or my brothers knocked on my door, and they came into the room. And I didn't know there was three of them, so there was just one brother there. And he said, can I talk to you for a minute? I was like, sure, come into the room. And then he came in, and two of my other brothers followed behind him. And I, 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 I just made it out alive. Nothing bad happened, really, well comparatively like i thought that that was going to be the end of it like i was going to get did you know that they knew at that point or were you i didn't know but the way they walked into the room i was like this is it like now i could tell because i sat in a chair and then they stood uh, one in each like one on each side of me and one of them. Uh, how old were you how old are you then i was 21 i was 21 at the time so um, what did they and, do and then they were just like who's gavin and i was like fuck like and I was like, Gavin's my friend. And they were like, friend or boyfriend? And I was like, okay, he's my boyfriend. And then they just went mad. I think, you know, like, so the conversation always goes with, with gay people in the Muslim community. The dialogue that's had with us is, you're disgusting. This is a perversion. You're a corruption. You're worse than a pedophile. You're, huh? you're an animal. You're... I had to share the cutlery with you. We had to drink out of the same cup. This is disgusting. Who knows what we've caught? All of that. Oof. But it didn't go, I mean, you know, say what you want. I was just waiting, like, is this going to get violent or is this not going to get violent? Because there's three of you and there's one of me. The door is on my left-hand side. If I need to move, I'm going to jump towards the left. So, like, I was looking uh-huh. in the room for weapons. And, and, and this is like, they, and, and you knew that with your brothers in your household, there was a history of violence. And you, you knew that there was potential for that. Right? Yeah, so, um, so violence was a very frequent occurrence in our house. Violence towards women particularly, was, uh, and the policing of women. But this bodies. didn't get violent. 
this didn't get violent. And so I think it didn't get violent because I'm the youngest and I was 21. And so that means everybody else had grown up a lot, right? So, right. um, so they're, they're and, mature then, but and in did your you, head. Did you talk back or did you just listen? Um, so I tried to explain that this isn't a choice, but, um, Islam is perfect, isn't it? So <laughs> obviously it's a choice. <laughs> it can't be anything else but a choice. So there was no listening for that. There was no listening for that at that time. That, that wasn't a time for, for growth for them. That wasn't a time for learning or development for them. It was very immediate apparent that this was a time of condemnation. But for me, what mattered in that moment was trying to show a sense of not being afraid because I had learned that when you expose vulnerability in this house, it can lead to, to violence. Like if I had looked more scared, I think mm. it may have got violent. Um, mm. but I didn't, I didn't let that show. And, um, and then I did they tell your parents? And then random things happened. So, uh, so I thought I was going to get thrown out straight away, but they said to me, you've got to leave the house. So I was like, I just need like four weeks to get sorted. And they were like, okay, you've got four weeks, which was, Quite benevolent of them, I guess. Well, yeah, so, this is your brothers or your parents involved now? So my, as well? my brothers, my brothers, my parents weren't told, I think, to, to save them, whatever coronary heart issue they thought my parents would have. You know, we always have this Desi drama of like, if your parents ever find out anything bad, it's going to give them a heart attack. But wouldn't they know once you left the house, once your brothers have told you four weeks later, you leave the house, your parents wouldn't? So my mom is like a very, uh, my mom is like from, from a Pakistani village without uh, education and mm-hmm. um, doesn't speak English fluently. Yeah. Uh, so they could spin whatever yarn they'd want to, to my mom. And, and, you know, she doesn't have friends in the uh, outside of the house and such. So, um, so she wouldn't know. With my dad, it would be a different story, I guess. But um, so what happened is a month later, I managed to sort out somewhere to move to with a good friend of mine. We moved out. I just said to mom, I'm moving out. Didn't say why. And um, then I, uh, I spoke to my employer at the time when I was working part-time and they were like, oh, we, I was like, I need to go full-time. I had to drop out of uni actually, which was quite disappointing. Um, and so uh, I spoke to my employer. They said that actually there's a full-time job for you. And if you want it, we've got a store for you in um, Northwest London, which was again back near This was after a year or so. They said they'd had a, a, a shop that I could run as the manager. And the type of company I was working for was like um, a lingerie company. And um, when my brothers found out that, I was going to open a lingerie store in the neighborhood near where they lived. Oh, wow. <laughs> just, um, <laughs> that, that kind of compounded it. And so then I started getting phone calls about... Ali, Gene uh, is saying, Gene in the live chat is saying your audio is a bit too loud. Oh, mine's too loud? Okay. I'll speak softer. Try or pick the microphone a little bit lower, maybe. Right. Okay. okay. Sorry. Right. And so then I started getting phone calls about... Um, you know, we're going to come and find you. We're going to beat you up. We're going to hire hitmen to kill you. What? Uh, and, and coming from, from these people, it felt very real. Like I, for me at that time, I was only like 21. Like I said, it felt like very real threats. They were like, we're going to find out where you work. We're going to come down to your shops. I had to go to the police at one point, And, um, that was when 
things eased off. Like, so one of the conversations finished and so my brothers called me up and they were like, if you come to this shop, you better mind out you don't get shot. And then they put the phone down. And, um, and that was what made me call the police. Actually, was at that point I went to the police and I was like, this is all getting a bit too much for me to handle and I don't know what to do. And then the police were like, uh, you know, you've done the right thing for coming to us. We can do an intervention and go to your house, uh, your parents' house and let them know what's going on. Or we can um, speak to your sister, who was a bit more of a middle person between them and, uh, and myself. And... Um, yeah, essentially when the police got involved, then they backed off and they left me alone. We didn't speak for 10 years. Like I was disowned for about 10 years. And then 10 years later, one of my brothers passed away. And I think that made people reassess their priorities. So 10 years later, when one of my brothers died, I went back home because a neighbor called me up and said, come home, your brother's passed away. And when I went home, it wasn't hostile because everybody was grieving. And yeah, when was this? Also, so this was probably about, I was probably about 35 or something like that. It's probably about five years ago, six years ago. Right. And, um, and also I think, um, I mean, the 20 something year old boy who left wasn't the same as the 35 year old man who came back. Mm. And, so it wasn't possible for them to have the relationship that they had with that almost child who left the home. To to So when I came back, I was very much more assertive as who I am as a person. And also, I think at that time, people were falling to pieces when my brother passed away, but I wasn't really that connected to him. Mm. So emotionally, I wasn't as impacted. So I was able to help out and do a lot of stuff that needs to happen when there's a bereavement you know like funerals and all of the rest of that and that probably endeared me some more towards them now our relationship is i have a very i have an awesome relationship with one of my sisters and my mum. uh the rest of the guys i don't know i just feel like as an adult when you've been discerned you have the luxury of choosing who you want to be close to and who you don't want to be close to when you reconnect with your family and so for me there are some people in my family who ideologically we're not aligned, so we don't really have that much of a relationship. And then my sister and my mom have the biggest hearts in the world. Like They just inspire me with their kindness. Mm-hmm. Um, and so we have an amazing relationship together. Has your, your mother's... Uh uh, has she met some of the people you've been relationships with and, you know, so she's involved or is she just, um, sort of- yeah, so she's definitely met my gay friends completely. My sister's met my gay friends as well. Um, and they've been okay with that. Like, uh, yeah, they've been chill with it. I think for the entire time where I was disowned, uh, my mum actively tried to stay in touch with me for the whole time. And she would try and do that through this one sister who, also tried to stay in touch with me. Uh, but my other sister, the boys, they, they didn't really, you know, they were, they were just instrumental in, in uh, ostracizing me from the family. And, uh, and your mom knew you were gay and she still wanted to stay in touch with you? Yeah, so she did. So I think, yeah, mom knew I was gay. She wanted to stay in touch with me. Uh, when we reconnected more, so mom tried to stay in touch with me, but I think I didn't know how to deal with being disowned and um 
whenever my mum and my sister would try to connect with me, I met them with hostility because I would feel a sense of betrayal that they hadn't stopped me being ostracized, that they hadn't tried to exercise some power or influence to stop me from getting um, kicked out of the house. So it would always erupt into an argument and I would be like, just stop calling me. I don't want to have anything to do with any of you. But they maintained through that, actually. And um, so then more latterly as an adult, when I, when, when I connected with them more after my brother passed away, um, you know, so mum would still say, oh, I'll bring blah, blah, blah from Pakistan and you can marry her. And I'd be like, mum, I'm going to get married to a man. <laughs> Don't. And she'd be like, shut up, disgusting. Like that. Like she'd just be outraged. By did, she, did they ever try to were there any attempts when you're I mean, when your brothers first found out, was it immediately just okay, leave in four weeks, or did they try to cure you or just tell you to get therapy or get a sex change or so, so Actually, that was sister, one of the questions in the live chat uh, chat. Did did anybody ever um Jim is asking if anybody Ah, Jim did, King, yeah, you great minds think alike. Like Jim, yeah. So. Did, did any? Did you were you ever pressured to get a sex exchange operation? Because I think that's something that happens in, mostly in Iran, where gay people are pressured. Oh no, no, it, it happens everywhere in the Muslim world, really? or I think even in general, and even in the West, when homosexuality was really, really taboo. Like in the eighties, they used to say, "Well, yeah, yeah." I mean, yeah. Mike Pence was in favor of uh, conversion therapy, and. You know, other not, not conversion therapy, like, uh, like in, for example, in Iran, mullahs are being convinced uh, for, for some reason that, that, which is weird that they, they were open minded about this, but not completely open minded that, okay, being gay is not a choice. So their solution to this was, well, you have to be a woman if you want to sleep with a man. So you have to, if you're gay, you have to get a sex exchange operation. Right. So right. They, basically, a lot of the Regressives tried to paint that as them being pro-trans rights. Trans, yeah, because so basically in Iran there is no laws against trans um, being transsexual, but there are. But if you're gay, you uh, you get hanged for it, right? So which is weird for Westerners. That's weird because they see uh, being um, gay gay rights is is something they see that gets accepted before trans rights. So when they hear in Iran, trans rights had made it through before gay rights for a lot of people, it's a bit weird, but they basically confuse it. They're confusing sexual orientation with sex, uh, with, uh, identity. Gender identity. Gender identity. I, I have so many, there's so many things on my mind, but the, yeah, the two things, first of all, did they try to cure you, whether it's conversion, whether it's uh, sex change. And, and the second thing is at, at this point, were you still religious when you were disowned at that point? Were you still a Muslim? And uh, yeah. So I'm going to try and touch on all three of those points. So first of all, I think for, for non-Muslims, let's explain that Islam only has two genders, right? And um, so you're either male or female. And that's what that whole gender conversion thing is about, isn't it? Because men can only sleep with women. Women can only sleep with men. So if you're a man who wants to sleep with women, become a woman, and then you can sleep with men. And that's what it's all about um, in terms of uh, Iran supporting trans right, and we're seeing right. that in Pakistan now as well. We're seeing that in Pakistan starting to happen. Like um, the 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 Muslim community is starting to have uh, trans people come up, and um, part of the, I think the support for that is actually you know we can copy this model that Iran has, and we won't have any gays then. We'll just have men who become women who have sex with men. Mm -hmm. um, so no no 
there was no compulsion in trans rights for me. Like nobody asked me <laughs> to change. Nobody asked me to change my gender. And um, if I'm honest with you, at one point my sister was scared that I would become trans because for her that would have been even worse. Yeah, mm. and I think it's an interesting thing to juggle as well, as well, because. Um, we venerate masculinity in male children, don't we? Like, it's like, if you right. have a ma male child, it's so much better than having a female child. So in some ways, becoming trans is the ultimate insult to the patriarchy because you are removing and surrendering this ultimate privilege of masculinity. So it's quite an interesting uh, uh, dichotomy. But So if I had become trans, my sister would have found it more difficult uh, and I think my family would have found that more difficult than um, me being gay I think yeah did you feel a lot of pressure from uh, so you said you're still Muslim when you when you when you came out of the closet right when you uh, when you forced yes, out of it's a good it's a good question it's a good question so um, let me just take you on that spiritual journey, I guess. So when I was younger... Uh, uh, sorry, sorry like, Jimmy, what, but before you go on, there's a related question that came up that's a really yeah. good question from Jin D. And uh, 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 he or she, I think? She, yeah, she. They, Z, uh, what are the different, whatever pronoun it is. <laughs> They're asking if being gay is the main reason you left Islam. So I guess that's related to whether you were still religious. But go ahead. Yeah, so there are two main reasons I left Islam, um, women's rights and hom homosexual rights. Yeah, those would be the two main reasons. Um, mm -hmm. Sometimes I think, although I'm an LGBT activist, I think deep in my soul, I'm a women's rights activist even more than that. And sometimes I'm ashamed to say it because I feel like my allegiance should be primarily towards um, no, the why? LGBT movement mm -hmm. um, because there's not enough of our voices. Uh, yeah. and you follow where your passion is. is. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I agree. I agree. Mm -hmm. um, and 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 if you read any of my writing, it's really quite paramount in there. You you would have seen some of the stuff I've written about Iranian women in the poetry. It just the women's movement. I feel like this. I feel like if a quarter of the world's population is Muslim, then my math is not that good actually at three a.m. in the morning. But presumably, an eighth of that. A world's population is then Muslim women, right? Yeah, that's the correct one. <laughs> so, the answer to the LGBT issue in our community is the same as the answer to overpopulation, is the same as the answer to the economy, is the same as the answer to every single aspect of our social world, is just the secular education of women of Muslim heritage. That will solve all of our problems. I like agree. If we pour yeah. our money and we invest money into the secular Most educational. Of many of our problems, not all of it, many. Many of our problems. Okay, we can nitpick, but it's 3 a.m. in the morning. <laughs> right. So, all of our problems. Yeah. Okay, so, so, and wait, 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 let me just finish this yeah. point because okay, okay. if we are saying that's one eighth of the population of the globe, not only will it move our societies forward when we bring this bottom line up. To, 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 through education and through, um, social mobility and through, uh, through professions, through work, through all of that development. But that will have a ricochet across the rest of the globe. And I think the answer to so many of our problems is about educating women of Muslim heritage. But actually, that's going to have broader ramifications for the globe. And that the 21st century is really about the women's movement in Muslim countries. 
Armin, sorry, can you? Uh, I know that I added this question on uh, later on, but uh, to the original one, were you still religious when you left? Can we? Mm. So, so yeah. So then Armin will come back to that because you asked yeah. about what, what were the reasons I left Islam, right? right so right, when right. I was younger, I was just I was just moderately Islamic, I guess, just like I was an Islamic kid in an Islamic family. I pray when my t- parents told me I had to pray. I didn't really want to pray. I would have rather played. Super Nintendo or Sega Mega Drive. Like, I'd rather be doing that than doing my prayers, but I had to do my prayers. And then sometimes we would go to talks, and I remember we went to a talk at the mosque, and Cat Stevens was there, like, <laughs> you know, Yusuf Islam. He's like, he was yeah. Yusuf Islam by yeah. that point. And then they did their talk, and, and one of the themes about the talk was making sure that, you know, our best friends are Muslims and staying away from the unbeliever and all of that nonsense and i stood up i was thinking i was like 11 years old so i put my hand up with the question and i was like excuse me if we're not allowed to hang around with them as friends how will we convert them and then cat stevens launched into oh we're not supposed to just ignore them we can do dawah with them but these people shouldn't be in our inner circle um and so i was at i used to go to talks like that with my family but then as i became older around 15, 16, 17, 18, I became more religious because I thought God could save me. Like, so this was a test. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So this was a test from God clearly. And, um, so the answer was more God. Yeah. So then I would start going away on for like the weekend retreats with the mosques and start praying really hard that, um, God would cure me. I would start doing wazu, and when I was doing my wazu, when I was washing for uh, for before the prayers, I would be trying to wash away my homosexuality. And yeah. how old were you when this doing this? So that was several years, like fifteen, sixteen, seventeen. And did you yeah. did you feel ashamed in front of God, like the fact that you thought that God could see into your mind? And so I hadn't done I hadn't done anything wrong because I hadn't had sex with any boys and had sex with any girls, like um, so I hadn't done anything wrong. I had tried to date girls. I felt like I was giving it my all, right? Like I was trying to be as straight as possible, but there was a sense of shame that I'm gay and actually this is disgusting. This is this is worse than being a dog or anything, right? It's worse than dog poo. Like, right. But uh, my understanding when I was a Muslim was that dirty thoughts and themselves are zina, are like, are their sin themselves. So even if you, if I, if I, even if I don't do anything, if I think about like girls, I'm already sinning, just thinking about it. Mm. So that wasn't your understanding? So it wasn't that nuanced. I think the shame wouldn't have been, so there was a sense of shame, yeah, like more than a sense of sin, yeah? I think it was just like, I'm I'm inhuman, I'm disgusting. Why has God done this to me? Um, I remember one day having the Quran and just crying when I was reading it. Like, I can't believe this is who I am. Why has God done this to me? And then what have I done to deserve this test? Like, what did I do something bad when I was younger? Um, you know, like, why would why would God do this to me? Or why why this test? Why couldn't it be 
any other test. But and I'm trying so hard to be straight. And then obviously the answer to everything in Islam is pray harder. <laughs> <laughs> Just pray harder. Like that's literally the answer to everything. Do you think, do you think get get harder is a better answer? <laughs> so so you, you you must have. Did you feel you you must have. You feel disgusted of who you are, right? Of yourself. Mm. Is that how is that accurate way of saying it? Yeah. So I felt disgusted of who I was. I, this is a common theme, right? So I, I work with a lot of um, gays and Muslim heritage. So it's a common theme of feeling disgusted with who you are, feeling like you are the embodiment of sin. Because I think that's one of the other things about being gay. It's like if you're straight and you and you commit Zina, do your viewers even know what that means? Like, so if you're straight, sexual ad, uh, adultery, sexual sexual sin, is that yeah, accurate? So yeah, yeah. So if you're straight and you commit some sexual sin, whether that's watching porn or having sex before marriage, eventually there's a halal route for you. You're right. But for gay people, there is never, never a halal route. So there's nothing you can do that will allow you to step into being authentic as an individual. That's and living right. An authentic I was just going to say that will allow you to be halal. I would, so, because as as a teenage, as a straight teenage Muslim boy, I always felt ashamed of having disgusting thoughts about girls. Right. And then God could see me and see my mind. And I always like feel the shame and I apologize to God. But I always told myself, one day I'm going to get married. I'm going to fuck her as much as I want, whenever I want. And this is all going to be fine one day. Uh, because, and then I'm going to do Toba, which is basically asking for forgiveness. All of these disgusting thoughts that I have will be forgiven. And I could just release my urges. Um, because I'm married now, right? Just like, just be patient. You're gonna get married one day. You're gonna get married one day. Release right? my urges. I haven't heard that phrase since that <laughs> Riyadh, the, the newspaper is, when people used. To, yeah, yeah this, this is the way. This is the way we. This we, is the, the lingo they use, and not only that, but you can actually even even when you get to heaven, you have seventy two virgins and and all of that. I mean, right? I, I no, that was too far away. I was just like, how when I get, when can like okay, I'm I'm a child right now. Like, how many more years do I have to go suffer through this, right? But then if I'm, I can't imagine. Imagine how bad could it be if you think this is never going to go away, right? Mm. Uh, like that's that's just like that was that few years of me thinking so disgusted on myself. That was psychological torment, and um, for you to think that that is part of your identity that is never going to go away, I think is I can't even imagine how much worse that yeah. could possibly be. So I think a lot of a lot of that opens. You know, so there's, there's sometimes we have the perfect recipes for mental health issues, don't we? So one of them is to be having uh, a life of taboo and, and not being able to talk about it. And then the sense of shame that goes with it. Like all of this stuff is just a catalyst for depression, for anxiety, uh, for suicidal thinking, you know, all of that sort of stuff kicks into it. And um, I think what's quite entertaining though, more recently, I don't know if you've heard this, sometimes we have these YouTube sheikhs, like young 20-something children saying, oh, um, well, you know, like, it's not, it's not haram to have gay feelings. It's actually haram to act on them. So a gay man can just not have sex 
Um, and that's exactly the same as me desiring other women and not having sex with them. But they always fail to... But that's worse. <laughs> they always fail to mention that actually, well, you can eventually get married to a woman and have sex, whereas mm. you're expecting a gay man to, to live, live this life. So it's a false equivalency. Right. Uh, and it's a very half-hearted um, way to try and make that equivalency. And In addition to uh, when we were talking about that sense of feeling, it's like, and you mentioned 72 virgins. So my understanding is not everyone gets 72 virgins willy-nilly, right? Isn't it just when you've, you're a jihadi? Die in the way of God. Yeah, you die in the yeah. name. Yeah. Yeah, so, so I mean, no 72 virgins for you, unfortunately. So, um, <laughs> well, I'm going to go to so hell, so I'm going to be someone's virgin. No, no, so no, no, there, no. There is a space. <laughs> there is a... <laughs> <laughs> there is this space. I swear, you're going to go up there. The 72 virgins is going to include basically uh, the, uh, the priests and the pope, and uh, that's it. That's you're going to have to. That's that, that's what's going to be in hell. Yeah. yeah. Um, so, uh, so there is this space, guys. Where, and I'm not the only one who who thinks this way. So I've spoken to other other gays of Muslim heritage who say the same thing. There's this space where suicide jihad becomes appealing. Because, right. actually, as a gay person, if I'm having gay sex, that's like one of the worst sins, right? That's not going to get forgiven mm -hmm. uh, I mean, just through my usual piss. But this idea that if I commit jihad, then I'm absolved of all of my homosexuality right. and my homosexual sins, and I get to go to heaven with 72 virgins and we can paint our nails together or <laughs> but I don't know what we would do that's actually fascinating yeah that's fascinating you know, so, so there was this sense like that that I would be disingenuous to say that didn't appeal to me sometimes like this idea I mean I never would I didn't think about it like well, let me commit um jihad but I did mm -hmm. think when I heard about jihadis going to heaven all of their sins being forgiven and right. you know, having a place by God's right hand with with Mo and, uh, and uh, people there, God's right. Like I was like, oh, maybe I should get to. Maybe if only I could be a jihadi. If only I could die in that way, right. because then my homosexuality will be forgiven, right. regardless of what's happened. Uh, you know, you know what's uh, a, a lot of people talk about uh, how the nine eleven hijackers, how they were at strip clubs and drinking the night before. And, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's the same principle and a lot of people don't get it. And, you know, they'll be like, well, if they were really Muslim, these are the people they weren't. No, because they are really Muslim. It's because they're really Muslim. Because they know that they know that the moment they say Allahu Akbar and they die in the way of God, then the strip clubs and the, you know, that's just a reward for them. All of that will be forgiven. Then, that's yeah. Well, not so, yeah. only will all of that be forgiven, but they're just going to go to one giant fucking strip club in the sky. Uh, with lots so, of alcohol. Yeah, why, if you wouldn't, why wouldn't you do every, like, if you know that you're going to be a shaheed or a martyr, like, everything's going to be forgiven, logically, just do everything you want before. Right, yeah. but yeah. is it not true? Like, so I was taught, like, and I don't know if like, because I, I know that some of my Islam is cultural Chinese whispers, right? So when I speak to some of you more hardcore extremist Muslims, <laughs> like, <laughs> I'm like, oh, that's not true. And you're like, no, that's not true. So is it not true that when you kiss the stone at the Kaaba, all of your sins are forgiven? Well, for us, as no. once you do the, all the Hajj. Um, the way we were told is that it's not the kissing, it's just doing the whole hatch thing, basically uh, uh, purifies all your sin. Sins, 
but before you before you go to your head, you have to go and um, everybody. You have to make a huge list of everybody you wronged. And then you go to them and you have to ask for forgiveness before you could actually go to Hajj. So if you don't, if you don't, if, um, if you don't do that, if you forget about somebody or miss somebody, then you actually, or somebody lies to you that they forgive you, but they didn't actually forgive you, then you're still screwed, right? Uh, but mar- being a martyr basically is easier. Uh-huh. Mm-hmm. So, so I think I didn't know about that whole forgiveness list, but there was this other part of me that was like, which is make sure you go to Hajj when you're 99 and someone pushes you around it. Like, and then you can kiss the stone. And then if you die, surely you've wiped a lot of your sins, all of your sins clean. And how much sins could you really accumulate in the last five years of your life? Like, <laughs> surely the good deeds I would have done would have been okay and outbalanced the bad deeds for the last five years. So, so when you left, uh, so, so, let, so let's move on to when you actually left Islam. Yeah. Two things happens, two things happen. So, um, so there was this sense of like, play away the gay. And then it became apparent that that wasn't going to happen. I don't know how it became apparent. But also at the same time as, as, as battling with my homosexuality, battling with the doctrine about homosexuality and how, how unfair it was towards gay people and understanding that this religion was making me feel this way. At the same time as that, I'm growing up in a house where I see, women's bodies are just being policed, like policed in a way that men's bodies are not being policed. So I grew up like where the boys in our house could go out and we could go play football or whatever, but the girls weren't really allowed to do that. And, and, uh, and they couldn't do that. When I used to be like, why aren't they allowed to do that? The reason would be because they're girls. And so I would always be waiting for the end of this sentence. Like, so because they're girls, And then that was the end of the sentence. And I was like, you guys, like, that's your reason, because they're girls. And it's not because they're girls, they can't, blah, 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 blah. It's just like, because they're girls, they can't do this. Because they're girls, they can't do that. And for me, that, coupled with the homosexuality, was like, this shit is, is a bit not making sense. Like Islam started to unravel at that point for me. Right. And then I think there was one fight where my dad was attacking my mom. And so all of the kids, we broke it up. And then I was like, why, why did you keep on hitting her? Blah, 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 blah. And my dad was like, I'm allowed to hit your mum." And I was like, you're not allowed to hit your mum." And he was like, God says I'm allowed to hit your mum." And I was like, that's utter crap. There's no way that God says, because it was like most Muslims, I haven't read the Quran, right? right? So I was like, there's absolutely no way that God says you can hit that. And then my dad just whipped out his Quran like Dr. Zakir Nick, he turned to, <laughs> to a fourth. <laughs> he was Sura like, four. verse four, four thirty-four, And then he just showed me that he can hit my mum. Like, and for me, that was another stack onto the pile. So, See, to this, so I kind of stopped to people, believing. People that say these verses doesn't actually influence people's behavior. They should remember stories like this. Yeah. Yeah. yeah I, it's absolutely ludicrous that, that the, text doesn't influence people's behavior mm-hmm. we should get onto that actually because I, I, how old were you when this topic. happened when uh, when uh, so that were... so that incident i was very young i was very young when that incident happened maybe i don't know 11 12 13 something like that yeah right, um, right. but the combination of all these different things that when i got to the point and then i started going to university and i was like 
you get a sense of freedom there, don't you? And you spend more time away from home as well. So even though I, I lived at home, I spent more time staying at my friends' houses and, and people would get into conversations about Islam and I'd be quite defensive about it. And then the more conversations I had, the more I was like, I don't really believe this, but nobody better say anything bad about Islam. Like that's not okay. Like even though I don't know if I, I don't know if I really believe yeah, you, that's anything bad about Islam. You're protective. I was really, yeah, so protective about Islam, so protective about it. And then when my family found out I was gay, so you said about coming out of the closet as being an ex-Muslim. Well, actually, what happens to most gays of Muslim heritage is you have a forced apostasy that yeah. the community decides because you are gay, you are no longer Muslim. And I was saying to you, these new progressive themes that you see now about, you can be gay and Muslim, they didn't exist at that time. So you right, were either yeah. gay or you were Muslim. And um, so there was this forced apostasy, like you're no longer Muslim, don't be in our house anymore. And that was one of the core components to, to me being disowned, was that you're not Muslim anymore because you are gay. Um, so then when, you know, being disowned and ostracized, whether you're for being ex-Muslim or gay or both, is a coercion method, isn't it? So what your parents want to happen, what your families want to happen is for you to say, okay, I'm not gay anymore, <laughs> I'm coming back home, and then I'll be straight now, or I'm not ex-Muslim anymore, I'll, I'll be Muslim now, I'm coming back home. But rather ironically, ostracizing someone gives them access to their own space and their it gives them a respite from being indoctrinated and, and surrounded by Islam all the time. So all of a sudden, I'm in a Western country, but I'm in not a diaspora community. I'm in a very white community living with non-Muslims. And that really allowed me to understand my apostasy better. So when people would ask me, oh, are you Muslim? Initially, I didn't know how to answer that question. I didn't know, how to, I didn't know if I was. I didn't know if I wasn't. I felt like I wasn't allowed to say I wasn't. If I said I wasn't, would lightning come and hit me from the sky? Like, you know, really, really struggling with this for, for quite a long time. Was it, was it a similar struggle to coming out as gay, like becoming out as ex-Muslim or which one? Yeah. How would you compare? Or I'm would you? Go on to a bit, I'm going to go on to a bit of a ramble, right? Because okay. I think we'll stop. We'll stop thing. talking. Okay. Yeah, so, so there's a book called The Greatest Taboo, and one of the authors in the book, she talks about the difference between black-identified gays and gay-identified blacks. And you can bring this and uh, apply the paradigm or concept completely to Muslims. So if you think about Muslims, like on a spectrum, and on this, uh, gay Muslims, sorry, on a spectrum, and on this side of the spectrum, you have individuals that lead with their gay identity and their homosexuality second. So these individuals you'll find embedded in the Muslim community. They might go to the mosque. They'll be celebrating Eid with their family in Ramadan. They'll going to all sort of uh, Muslim community events. Yeah, um, And on the other side of the spectrum, you have um, individuals from Muslim heritage who lead with their gay identity, and their Muslim heritage is secondary. So these people you'll find more in the gay scene and they won't be embedded in the Muslim community and their livelihood, uh, sorry, and their lives will be much more about socializing around gay bars, gay clubs, and the gay community and their gay friends. And they're two very different experiences. And I feel like I've had them both. So like when I was younger and I was living at home, I was a, a gay person, but I lived, I, I led with my Muslim identity first. 
And in that realm, there's a lot of, um, there's a lot of options that happen. So actually for individuals who lead with their Muslim identity and they're homosexual, often they won't categorize themselves as gay. So they might call themselves same gender attracted because being gay is a very white thing. It's for white men. So being same gender attracted allows you to be Muslim, but acknowledge that you are attracted to the same gender. Oh, and then your options, your options might be, I'm saying I'm Muslim, same gender attracted, and I'm going to be abstinent for my whole life. I won't have sex with any, anybody. Or, um, you might be Muslim and same gender attractive and you find a sister and you say, sister, my dean is weak. Allah has given me this test. Will you marry me? Because it will be more sawab for you. De and your dean means, means religion uh, and sawab means uh, good blessings. Deeds. Reward, yeah, yeah good blessings. Deeds. Sorry. So, so, so uh, uh, a same gender attracted Muslim man might say to a woman, please, will you marry me? Because actually you'll strengthen both of our religiosity. Um, Allah will praise you for, for, for this charitable deed you're doing and it will help me um, stay religious and not commit sin. Right. And, and sometimes and, and that... Sister doesn't mean sister. Sister means sister in faith, which is mean oh basically my gosh. Yeah, Muslim woman. <laughs> Muslim woman. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> as a woman. So, um, so, so you have those two... You have those two permutations, but you also have that same permutation of marrying a woman, but not telling her that you're same gender attracted. Yeah. So getting married to a woman and just being like, oh, I'm going to marry a woman. And, um, you know, this is what all imams will tell you to do if you go and tell them that you're gay. They'll be like, oh, just marry a woman. It will be chill. It will be fine. So you, you get that happening as well, where the woman is then duped into this relationship with a with a gay man, essentially, or a same gender attracted man, as they call themselves. Your mic is hitting your and shirt. Sorry. So you'll okay. get the, the 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 same gender attracted man marrying a woman, but not telling her. And for me, this echoes the disposability of women in our community. That that when imams say to gay men, "Oh, just get married to a woman," it shows our value of women in our community, or the lack of value that we have around women in our community. Like it's a tool to cure you. Exactly. And you know, like, we're not even thinking about what is that woman's experience. Like, nobody is thinking about what is this woman's experience being married to a gay man. No one cares about it. That Nobody's thinking about it. It's just prescribed as some sort of... There's a hope that if, uh, you know, you're gay and, and if you, my son is gay and if he has sex with a real woman, then eventually he won't be gay anymore. He just doesn't okay. know. This is, this is why some fathers will, when they find out their daughters are lesbians, they sometimes pay somebody to come rape their uh, daughter because That's they think true. they might, she might end up liking it and end, like just, you know, basically... Fuck her until she becomes straight. Like that's yeah, that's yeah. the understanding that some people have. Completely. Yeah. So 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 with with the Muslim men on this side of the spectrum, they how this plays out though, uh, I mean, is very interesting. So you might be say you're going to abstain from gay sex. You might get married to a woman, either covertly or overtly showing your same gender attraction with her. And it all starts out with goodwill and good intentions. But before you know it, you're in the back of car seats in alleyways, having anonymous sex with other men and uh, then walking home feeling ashamed to your wife and children. Or you're cottaging in 
gay parks in the dark under trees um having sex in bushes then going back home to your wife or your community or if you're if you're um abstinent maybe you still live with your parents and this sense of um animalistic uh, 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 intimacy physical intimacy that is devoid of any sense of emotion emotional attachment or any sense of nurture and um uh and uh i guess building of like you know a relationship between someone that plays out in that in that situation when people are leading with their islamic identity and homosexuality doesn't have a place for them and must be denied and then on the other side of the spectrum where you've got individuals who are leading with their with their gay identity you know you would think that okay this is going to work out much better it's going to be okay but they're leading with their gay identity they're in gay circles they're finding gay men having gay relationships but their faith still underpins much of the activity that's taking place so if they are a more traditional believer they've still subscribed to this idea that actually everything that they're doing is sin and so sometimes when you're having a pint late at night and you're talking to them and they're just like you know so there was one guy we were talking to and he, and he was saying what well, was talking about his sister I don't know what it was and he was like well at least she's not going to burn in hell like me for all its ends oh yeah and it's like so on the surface it looks like you're really okay with your gay relationship with your boyfriend but underneath that you've got this underpinning belief that actually Allah's going to burn you in hell forever because you're a sodomite and you know we all know what he did to the city of Lut and their people mm. so it's really interesting how islam plays how those two identities first of all these two camps hate each other anyway because they're the antithesis of each right, other right tell us a little bit about that actually so if you are a if you are a muslim identified gay person then actually what you're doing is saying no to homosexuality and that islam has to come first but if you are a gay identified muslim person you're saying homosexuality comes first islam comes second so they're kind of like uh, diametrically opposed in terms of what is the So these are muslims that are gay and hate ho- hate those because they're giving into their sin Basically. Yeah, so these people are giving into their sin, right. uh, and these people are saying, "You're saying I am a sin, but actually, no, I'm not a sin. I should be allowed to do this." But deep down, the belief that they are a sin does exist, and that plays out in the sense of self-loathing. By yeah. the way, can we hashtag hashtag not all this? I don't want. <laughs> yeah, hey, hashtag, don't want not all hashtag not all. Hashtag not all. Yeah, yeah. Hashtag not all. But 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 you're talking yeah, about. We're gonna actually. You're... Rename this podcast hashtag not all. Just always assume that we don't have to say it every fucking time. But uh, but uh, but you're but there's a third group, isn't there? You're talking about Muslims that think uh, being Muslim is first. uh, Muslims that think being gay is prioritary, and then there's ex-Muslim gay people. So I guess I guess there's another group before we go to ex-Muslims. There's another group of gay Muslims who are completely well integrated with their homosexuality and their Islam, and it goes hand in hand. And they've reinterpreted the story. That's a new thing to say. So no, yeah, that's a new thing. That's a new thing. But the story of Lot now means that actually God was just punishing them because there was bad people. They were just yeah, because they were because they, because they, not because they were gay, but because they wanted they wanted to rape the angels, not because the angels were men. 
Yes. Right. But again, except for the story. fact that Lot actually offered his daughters. Right. So that Quran actually contradicts that. Yeah, because if, right. so if Lot, because, because, he said, don't rape the angels. Here, take my daughters. That's right. in the Quran. Lot right. tells the angels, here, take my daughters. They're so how, does that, how does that contradict? Because if, they're, because if the rape was the issue, then him telling, hey, here, rape my daughters would have been a solution, right? The fact it doesn't mean they're not, they're not so if God is killing them because they're abhorrent people who like to rape people, the fact that they just didn't rape the angels that one time and they would have had the daughters and said doesn't mean that God wouldn't still kill them for being abhorrent people. I uh, know, but uh, but uh, Jimmy, what what's what we're saying is that um, Lot actually offered his daughters to them, so he told the prophet them, of yeah. God suggested, "Don't do this bad thing. Here, come do this thing that is okay, which is raping my daughters." Right. So he actually said that, "Don't come, and these are my house guests. So do not come near them. Right. Instead, here, take my daughters." So he actually offered his daughters himself, which which means that he didn't really care if he like if they were rapists he's basically telling them rape my daughter so it wasn't really the it was the gender if they were raping the males then that would have been a well, problem, some could, somebody could argue it wasn't the gender it's because they were guests yeah but <laughs> and also angels are, when did angels have gender oh they haven't of course angels have gender oh, no no they were they were actually in the in the form of men when they had come as yeah. this guests. oh I see no, but I even see. even in heaven we oh, the do you have angel, men angels and women angels? By the way, when yeah. I, if I made it to heaven, I would have started a union for angels because apparently they're slaves. They don't have any free will. So, mm-hmm. yeah. So, I mean, they're se- yeah, most of them are sex true. slaves. But- right. And the verse, just for people who are interested in this, is uh, Surah uh, 11, uh, verse... 78. But there, there are specific, more specific verses that says you, you chose to sleep with men instead of women and this you are the worst of all people. Like that's a, That makes it very specific. Yeah, and then there's hadith that are all about throwing your gay off the roof with no parachute. And right, um, right. Yep. But and then I think you that, again, so, yeah. Yeah, so for on. this third group of Muslim gays who have fully integrated their religion and their homosexuality, you know, like... Um, they they will see those hadith as as weak. They will have much more progressive interpretations of these um, of these verses in the Quran that they don't find dissonant with right. homosexuality. So that's the third group. More power to them. If you reconcile your faith and your homosexuality, no, 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 don't know, no, no, I don't support. <laughs> they're, they're providing oh, cover for a shameful ideology. I don't agree. With yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I agree. And I but they don't know that. They they don't about. think that though. Yeah. Right. They don't but think don't, that. They think that the, the ideology is. Yeah, they actually really do believe. I mean, I I know them. There's a big community here in. Uh, yeah, Canada, they think they're Salam Canada. Right. Yeah, they they actually do believe that uh, the the Quran is consistent. Yeah, I'm not. I'm not saying. I, I mean, of course, you could be forgiving to them because they are. They they don't know that they're causing harm. But th- I don't think we should support that cause because they are basically PR front for an ideology that has caused so much harm to gay people. Yeah, I do hear what you're saying. I think my priority is how do we stop gay people being killed. And right by exposing Islam as well as a true harmful ideology that it is. Yeah, but is that a more longer-term strategic objective? It is. And are there baby steps on the way to that? That more immediate. I think this is a baby step away from that because it provides. Hang on, hang on, so let me finish. Yeah, okay. let me finish. So is so, but if our objective is stop gay people being executed, yeah, right. then is this a baby step towards having? 
achieving an objective, but a baby step towards having um, gay people dialogue. Being killed. Yeah, not well, even dialogue, but just stopping gay people being killed. Because if actually we're baby stepping towards, it's okay to be gay and Muslim. Yeah, mm -hmm. or actually, it's not. It's not the sexuality that's that's the sin. It's the action. Anything mm -hmm. that has gay people live for a bit longer will help our movement move forward because there'll be more. I don't want to get into this that much because this is the reform discussion, but I, but I just want to quickly touch on it and say, I think it's actually going to hurt more gay people because this is more to me, it's more of a conversation stopper. It's a way to get for people to be okay with Islam mm -hmm. and not attack it. And it's just a PR front for mostly for non-Muslims. Uh, and they just see a few examples of, well, it's, you know, it could be like this. So therefore don't Islam is not bad. Right. So I think it's actually, it's not a baby step in the right direction. I think it's a baby step. Uh, can, I, can, I, can I say something Please. about this yeah. really quick? Too? I don't concur. I don't concur. Yeah. yeah. yeah I, so, I think if you're thinking in Muslim communities in Pakistan, the idea mm -hmm. that atheism is going to be this first step for people to stop. Not atheism. Doubt. Doubt. Possibly. But I think, I think what people might be more able to listen towards mm -hmm. is some rhetoric of gay Muslim rather than non-Muslim. So, uh, so, so can I, can I say something? I just want to say one thing in this, um, is, is that, uh, Armin, actually, I, I think that what you're saying, we should continue to say that. Like as ex-Muslims, as atheists, we should continue to say what we're saying. But where I agree, um, uh, with Jimmy is, and, and we have an analog of this that, you know, in, in Christian majority societies, uh, there's a lot of people who've actually, I mean, they're not necessarily killing gay people anymore. Uh, and there has been growing acceptance, even with people who are saying, okay, we're Christian, but we accept gays. So I, I think that that is. Right, Probably, but I think uh, that that change. I, I think is, both things. I, what, no, what no, I'm no. I, 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 I don't think I don't agree at all because I think what, what if anything that that kind of rhetoric has slowed slowed down the progress. I think the reason why Christianity was pressured into taking positions like this is because of them because of the fear of becoming irrelevant from ideas uh, from people suggesting Christianity is anti-human, anti-gay, anti-woman because uh, of it's other it's ideas. People like us were around. People like yeah. us were around. So basically, I think well, even, yeah, even if you see these defense mechanisms from religion, it's not because of a self-reflection on religion. It's because of competition and threats from outside of religion that it's a response to that, not a response to, hey, let's look at within religion. And you know what I mean? It's not religion itself is not responsible for it. Uh -huh. It's us as people that are challenging religion that is that makes religion defensive like this. Yeah, yeah. But anyways, so I don't want to get yeah, into this. Let's reform, move on. Let's let's move on. So I just think my, my last point on that would be, well, mm -hmm. regardless of what we all think as ex-Muslims, right. is there are some Muslims who want to be gay and I want them to have a space. Right, right, of course, that's of safe. course. No, that's the, the and no, no, and no. I want them to have a space that right. isn't riddled with having sex in the back of cars or in parks. Oh, of course, detrimental to their mental yeah. health. Yeah. So, where I see gay Muslims crafting out that space, even though I think that their ideology is abhorrent, 
I will I will align myself to help them. Of course. No, no, no. This is a huge misunderstanding of what what I what people No, think. no, I'm not saying it was I know, I know, I know you're not saying uh, but but I want to say like you could definitely be gay and Muslim. I don't but saying Islam is not compatible with homosexual like gay rights is not the same thing as saying Muslims can't be gay. I think what I'm what I'm suggesting is that right. people's yeah. ideologies are influenced not just by Islam. I think when people are becoming moderate or reformists, it's not Islam that is making them moderate or reformist is, is, uh, or is other ideas outside of Islam that is making them moderate yeah, or reformist. Yeah. I, I agree I think with you. When, I think when you say, when, it, because when, when people say, oh, you can be gay and Muslim, so Islam is pro-gay, i like, no, you, you're reducing Muslims to nothing but Muslims. Muslims are many things and they're, influ- not, they're not just influenced by Islam. To give credit to Islam for their open-mindedness is is giving credit where credit is not due. I think they are Muslims are influenced by many different cultures or ideologies that they're exposed to, uh, and you know if you see a Muslim advocating for gay rights, give the credit to that Muslim. Don't give the credit to Islam because Islam does not deserve the credit for it. Yeah, yeah, I, th- I think we we agree on that. Right. Okay. Um, so, yeah. Jimmy, uh, another question I wanted to kind of uh, bring in. Um, oh, sorry. Yeah, go I ahead. Think Armin, Armin wanted to just. I think Armin was going to bring in what about gay ex-Muslims? I think right. Oh, right. Yeah. Let's do that. Let's do that. So we were saying that you had this spectrum on like with um, Muslim-identified gays, and then you had gay-identified Muslims, and then you happy happy gay Muslims somewhere in the middle. Um, so I think the interesting thing on this spectrum is that when you introduce apostasy underneath all of this, it clears so much of that self-loathing. Yeah. So the minute you understand whether you're leading with your Islamic identity or whether you're leading with your gay identity, the minute that you understand that actually this whole Allah game is just a farce and you don't have to worry about actually I am sin, you're able to step into an authentic life in a way that you're not able to do if the basis of your life is my sexuality is sin. and. Um, and I think that's the beauty of, of apostasy for gay people, actually, in our community. It really does open up uh, uh, an ability to step into a space of integrity and authenticity in their lives. Right. Um, we should get into patron questions. I, I do want to talk about yes, the Allah gay sign and the, your some of your activism. Should we do that first or should we go to patron questions first? <laughs> well, I love that sign. Whatever you want to do first is fine with me. All right, I'm going to wait for Ali to uh, to do patron questions. So let's go into the uh, take us through. And you have some copycats ever since you did that, by the way. So yeah, we do. We do. Isn't yes. that interesting? Uh, yeah. yeah. Okay. So can you tell us uh, how did that start? What's the story behind it? What's your experience? Sure. That's a huge uh, thing. Okay, go. On. So it, I think it was last year, and the Council of Ex-Muslims of Britain, um, the gentleman who who. Uh, one of the gay gentlemen who's an activist with us, Daniel, he decided to have the idea to apply to Gay Pride to see if we could march with them. So we got signed up and we were allowed to march and then we made our signs and, you know, we were like wondering what sort of, um, we had several meetings before to decide what our theme would be for the Pride event. And at that time, I mean, there was a lot of news around, um, about Chechnya rounding up gay men into concentration camps. And, uh, you know, that's, that's something we haven't heard of 
since uh, the Holocaust, right? Like rounding up gay men into conversation gaps. So we were like, this needs to be our theme. We need to talk about the impact of Islam on hem homosexual people in the 13 states where they can be executed. Um, so we made big banners about 13, gays, 13 states execute gays. Uh, we made it clear that it was Islam. And then we also decided to call out some bastions of hate in London. So the East London Mosque is a, is a very well-known mosque here. And um, they had a gay preacher. They've had num hosted numerous gay preachers who have talked about uh, you know, Sharia law executing gays in Muslim countries. But one of the preachers did a spot the fag competition, like um, put up some slides with, I think, Elton John and Tupac, and the heading said, spot the fag. What? This is in London in the UK in the, I think like it was probably about seven years or eight years ago um, in London. Like yeah, it's, it's unbelievable that that could happen in a mosque in London. So we had a few signs calling out that particular mosque as well, saying East London mosque incites um, hatred of lesbian and gay people, something along those lines. Uh, we had other signs that said, fuck Islamic homophobia. Uh, we had lots of signs that say Allah is gay. And it's really important to have that sign that said Allah is gay because in our community, the only time you see the word Allah and gay together is when it's in the sentence of Allah hates gays or Allah condemns gays or whatever, some, some um, negative connotation to it. So, you know, we went in with these signs that were quite comical, like Allah is gay, but also to juxtapose the words next to each other so that people could see look, you're really, really offended by the fact that Allah was gay. How offended you are by that should speak to you about how you feel about gay people. It was really to start highlighting that. We get to the march with our signs. Um, so some, some, so I think a couple of gay Muslims saw the signs and got really offended. And um, they called the police over. The police started coming to talk to us. We were speaking to the police. In the end, they left us alone. But the, after much conversation about, please take your signs down. They're offending people, blah, 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 blah. And we were like, why is Allah's gay offensive? If you've got a problem with Allah being gay, you don't need to be at pride. Like, you should really go somewhere else. Um, and the police were actually, you know, it was quite interesting. They weren't, like, completely coming down on us. They did understand our side. I felt like they were they were trying to be understanding. We agreed anyway that whilst we were queuing, we would put the signs down. And then as soon as the march started, we would lift our signs back up. The march started, we started walking, and the response from the crowd was amazing. It was nothing short of amazing. Like people were screaming and they were cheering for us. And um we were marching with some other contingents and they uh, they were they were screaming for us like the loudest out of anybody. So it was really heartening to see that. But then at the end of the march, uh, a few days afterwards, uh, the, Mus the, the mosque um, sent a complaint to Gay Pride about allowing us to, to, to march. And then Gay Pride in a true liberal, lefty, reactionary, probably some white person who doesn't understand the dynamic of ex-Muslims said, oh, we will not tolerate Islamophobia. And that Fuck. was caught by the press and then the press released it and it, before you knew it was in papers. Um, so then that meant that... Wasn't yeah, G was it in the same, is the same pride that didn't, weren't there signs that says Jesus is gay? 
feels like Jesus has two dads, all kinds of blasphemes about Jesus. Well, classic. But none of that was called out, but there was a, but the pride said. We pointed with the police. We were like, "What about that sign over there that says Jesus has two dads?" <laughs> no one's, no one's complained about that sign, and so we haven't got a problem with it. It was just absolutely ridiculous. I, I, I just want to mention that Pride is coming up uh, this year, yeah. and I think uh, it would be great if anybody who's listening to this in the ex-Muslim community, if you're in cities where there are Pride parades, um, ex-Muslims should come out and Let speak. Everybody have uh, this this pride have more <laughs> signs that says Allah is gay. If you want to make a difference, because if you want to push the barriers a little bit further, everybody doesn't matter if you're ex-Muslim or not. Take signs says Allah is gay. Ar- Armin has a yep. great Armin's uh, atheist republic has a great picture of uh, of a Kaaba uh, that is draped in a rainbow. Uh, thing and I think that that's also a great thing to blow up. Yeah. I, I, I mean, yeah. to blow up as in uh, photographically <laughs> to, to enlarge, yeah. enlarge as a photograph to carry around. Yeah. And and I think that um, it, 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 there was an incident here, Jimmy, in in Toronto as well, where the Antifa folks, you know, the uh, mm, I Antifa, saw it. I saw it. I saw yeah, it. they tried to shut down. Uh, LGBT yeah. members from who were persecuted under Islamic governments who came out and who were talking about Islamic persecution of gays and they Antifa tried to shut them down because they thought they were Islamophobic. Mm. I mean, that's how ridiculous so, I mean, things are. The, the equivalent of that over here was Pride then decided to do an investigation into us and et cetera, et cetera. And so there was this, um, there was this space where we thought we weren't going to be allowed to march again this year subsequent to that we had a meeting with them gave them uh, a lot of an education i think they genuinely thought we were islamophobes actually and then when they met with us they were like i was like how am i an islamophobe i have to go buy if you're gay in a muslim country you probably should be an islamophobe but yeah. A good yeah i mean that's, yeah. we should stop using that term we should stop using that time. We should just and, own it. <laughs> no, yeah, by Islamophobe, by, by what they actually mean is anti-Muslim bigots. That's what yeah, they mean. That's, that's it. But I mean, they're not nuanced enough to, to have that understanding. In we Canada, try to we are, our politicians, surprisingly, were nuanced enough when the M103 mm-hmm. bill came out. A lot of politicians were like, can we change the term Islamophobia with anti-Muslim bigots? Well, well and, not only that, but uh, Yaz and I both testified to Parliament about it, mm-hmm. and they actually did include our issues with the term Islamophobia and Islam, there were only two recommendations in that entire M103 report out of 30 that actually even talked about Islamophobia. And one was just about the term and how it's controversial. So that's progress. Well done. Yeah, that is because so one of those Islamophobia. Uh, you guys in UK are going backwards. I mean, one person that copied you, I don't know how you feel about. It. I think I don't know if they copied you guys or uh, Lauren. They copied us. L- they did copy copied us. Lauren Sutter, which is a Canadian, which is a Canadian journalist. Is that what she is? I don't know if that's fair. To she, I think she's like a YouTube personality, isn't she? Or no, like she's from. TV isn't she on Rebel? Um, but she could yeah. be called a journalist or an intellectual, considering Trump is president. But apart from that, <laughs> okay, uh, she's, a, she's an activist. She's a she's a does she? I don't know far far right, but um, I, I mean she's far right, right? Or does she identify as far right? Um, she's conservative for sure. 
but she's uh, for sure, yeah. for sure. Um, so. but I don't know if she had, but she's accused of being far right. I don't know if she accepts that. I don't think she, oh, um, her Wikipedia says well, right? But I don't know if she accepts that label or not. Mm. Uh, but they basically, what they did was they had, uh, they copied you guys and they had Allah is, uh, gay signs in their rally and they and, and when they tried to come to UK to talk to Tommy Robinson they were they were they were not allowed in UK and the reason why it was mentioned on the uh, the documents for why they they were called terror they were labeled as terrorists and they the uh, one of their evidence I don't know if it was all of their evidence but one of their evidence for why they're ter- why they shouldn't they're a threat to UK security it was these Allah is gay signs uh, so what what are your thoughts on that so I, I think they actually came to the UK isn't it and they did it so they did it in Luton. That's where they were had their stall up, and they okay. were, had a little stall. And so Luton's got a massive uh, Muslim population, and so they made a little stall. And then Lauren's story was: I was at a talk somewhere, or I went and saw something, and there was a sign saying Jesus is a gay god. And I thought to myself, what would happen if I did Allah is a gay god? So I thought, let me do a social experiment: go down to Luton with some people and make up a stand that says Allah is a gay god. So uh, this was your idea. Interesting, interesting that she decided to do that after I think Tommy and Katie Hopkins and the rest of them the, had tweeted out tweets of us walking around with Allah's gay signs at Gay Pride. So it was interesting that, that, that they did that. But um, how do I feel about it? I feel like don't co-opt our movement. You know, I feel like actually... We were, we were, our motivations are probably quite different in terms of what we're trying to do. And we were marching for, um, uh, to bring attention to the plight of gay people who were being put in concentration camps in Chechnya. I don't think Lauren was that worried about the gays in Chechnya being put in concentration camps, nor those in Pakistan or Iran or any other place, actually. I think what she's trying to do was just co opt what we were doing to get some publicity. Well, their the defense might be. Their defense might be they're trying to expose the amount of homophobia in the Muslim community. Yeah. And, um, but do I think she should have been banned for that? I don't think she should have been banned. Uh, yeah, I, yeah, yeah, I agree. I, I, I think, think this is a, one of those cases of uh, the dumb and dumber thing where, you know, you have yeah. both sides. One of them has this uh, sort of agenda, which you're like, okay, this is ridiculous. And then the government bans them from coming in, which is even more ridiculous. And, uh, you know, you're just like, okay, which side do I pick? And you're forced to pick well, the I mean, side. Come on. Of, I mean, the government side is way more ridiculous. I mean, I don't even, I haven't yeah, watched ever Lauren's video, so I don't know. She it's much have, more she ridiculous. She shouldn't have got shut down for, so of Lauren course not, got, she shouldn't have, yeah. She shouldn't have got shut down for saying Allah is a gay god. And also when you watch the video, like the police come over to her and, and her buddies and they're like, um, you need to, you know, you need to take down your whole stall. <laughs> you need to, take, I'm just laughing because it's ridiculous. You need to take your whole stall down. And when they, they're, they're secretly filming the police at one point, they say, why did you tell us to take our stall down? They're like, because we knew that you guys were going to get hurt, like someone, there was going to be some violence. And so essentially what they're oh, saying God. is Muslims were, Muslims were going to beat you up. So, uh, so you the police is being a... Uh, they proved their point. They proved yeah. the point that they were trying to make. Yeah, right. yeah, completely. But I mean, and, and I think, you know, the, I think, I think, you know, cause, and people were like, oh, the police should have been protecting them, blah, blah, blah. But Luton is like a heavily Muslim area. The police yeah. are going to do whatever they can do that's going to shut down the trouble so you can't really blame the police because they were right, I think, weren't they? 
No, I, th- I think the police, the police. No, I mean, like, if it's I, if if they did it not because they're like, oh, this is hate speech. Yeah, but, they, but if they did it, that would be like I think I would question that. But if they did it because they thought like these people are going to get hurt. Yeah, but, but we can't so say that. Of, I yeah. think there's a bit of both, though. I mean, I think right. like they, there's a public order act which if you're offending people, I think might it, you might be contravening the Public Order Act. So I think part of them was that you're breaching the Public Order Act because everyone's saying they're offended. Mm. But, girl, you better go because <laughs> they can break your legs. <laughs> like, I think you think, you think this whole public well, that means order... That they're, they're already victims of terrorism. <laughs> it means that that's terrorism working right there when the police is like, oh no, Muslims might beat you up, so let's shut this down. So, there you go. That's, that's terrorism at But work. you know what? The other thing is this, though. Like, let's not dance around this fact. Muslims might beat them up. Like right. I think if if she walked around with a Jesus is gay or or, or a Krishna is a gay god or I didn't even know who the Sikhs Krishna was, is a gay god. Why India has an anti-homosexuality thing in their thing. They're, it was controversial. It was like, the, 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 this is like the Hinduism has the gayest gods of all. <laughs> but but we, ha- we have to ask ourselves. And I think, I think we have to ask ourselves as a community is why are we so ready for violence all the time? Right. Like why you could, you, you could do that with, you could do that with Guru Nanak as a gay guru even Buddha is a gay god no one would be getting beaten up right that actually that, that's why I like these signs because a lot of people a lot of atheists say like what's the point of these signs there is no Allah what, what, what a ridiculous childish statement is it to say Allah is gay Allah is not anything mm-hmm. and like no you guys are missing the point we're pointing out that look if we said this about any other god nothing would happen we're trying to show you that how ridiculous this Islam situation yeah. is becoming but do you think this whole laws regarding not offending people in the UK I'm I'm waiting for the day that it backfires because uh, for somebody to come and make those cases on about the Quran, because if we set the precedent, I mean, technically, legally, this shouldn't this should be winnable. Like, if you set a precedent that things that are grossly offensive should be banned, there should be a like a there should be a GoFundMe where you get hire a whole bunch of lawyers and they come and use the same laws against the Quran. I think at some point it should happen. I do see what you mean. I do see what you mean. I think, yeah, interesting point. I don't know is the answer. Well, I mean, what that, I think that, is more. Yeah. Go ahead. Go ahead. Oh, no, I, I, I was, yeah, go ahead. It's a, it's a complete <laughs> tangent. It's a complete tangent, but it just popped into my head as you were saying it because, like, you're saying actually the Quran is pretty offensive, right? Like, what, what I think is really interesting is that. And I'm more concerned about the Muslim community than, than, than I am about winning the laws against other people. Is that actually in the Muslim community, we're absolutely fine handing out Qurans that say, and actually handing out hadiths that say, push a, push a gay man off the roof and kill, kill a gay man. But if gays were handing out books saying, push a Muslim off the roof, <laughs> oh, if gays were handing out books saying, <laughs> kill a Muslim. Right. What would our attitude be like as a Muslim community to that? That's, and what yeah. would our attitude be like as, as British society? If somebody found out there was like a thousand gay people handing out literature saying kill or a Muslims. thousand any people. If, yeah, any people. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and, um, 
A thousand any people. Yeah, a thousand any people is true. I just kind of feel like, <laughs> like the gays would have a good reason. It would be like getting one back. Do you know what I mean? <laughs> so, <laughs> so, but if gays were doing that, like it would be absolutely outlandish. And when you think about it, like, you know, all across the globe in Muslim majority countries, Muslims are working to, um, to limit the, the rights of gay people or to actually have them executed. Yeah. But conversely, all across the globe, absolutely nowhere, gays are mobilizing to not do anything to Muslims. You had better not watch out. It's amazing. It's, yeah, like, that... it's like if, but if gays started mobilizing against Muslims in the way that Muslims are mobilizing about gays, we would be screaming Islamophobia from every flipping minaret. Like <laughs> everywhere. Uh... Yeah, Jimmy, there's a, there's a couple of things. So that we're then, not screaming homophobia in our community, or we're not yeah. screaming homophobia towards Muslims for some reason. I don't understand that. Right, we're not. There, there's one thing that I uh, and, and I wrote about this actually quite extensively in, in a section of my book as well. Is that uh, th this is why it's really important to protect hate speech under free speech. It's not because we support hate speech, but because if we were to criminalize hate speech the quran the bible all these books they would be the first to go right well, and then the, well that's not a good reason ali because a lot of people are like okay good <laughs> right no no but it's it's not it's not good like there, there are places where mind Kampf is banned and it shouldn't be banned there's places where no, holocaust but, but, but you're not the case for it is because um who gets to say what's hate speech right and also if hate speech is um hidden uh then we don't it, it's not recognized as a problem Right. If right. you give authority to a, a government to to uh, to uh, you know to stop any kind of speech, then at some point it's going to decide that things that are, what what is hate speech is whatever is a threat to that government, right? Mm -hmm. um, and you know, and in and also the people, whatever, whenever you actually stop any kind of speech as hate speech, you're giving that group of people the victim card which usually for it makes them actually more um grow faster especially when it's religion religion feeds on you know like there's no, i mean look at germany right uh, germany is now has a, a rise of a far right problem and this is one of the countries that uh, limits uh, free, free uh, speech uh, that kind of speech. No, but that, that's ex that's exactly what i'm saying i think that right. the point is that you you should never ban hate speech hate speech right. should always be protected against yeah i agree yeah in, in under free speech and one of the examples of that is that a lot of uh, what goes for religious speech that stuff that's in the quran and the bible they tend to be overt hate speech. And the the other thing is, and and, and so so you can't have religious freedom and also ban hate speech. You can't do that because they contradict each but other. But I think I and think the, even, the even if you have free speech, you might actually still be able to get rid of religion because free speech doesn't protect. No, 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 that's that's what I'm saying. Like when when you want to get rid of religion, it's not going to be through banning these books or through banning any no, of this stuff. It's going to be through. But what I'm saying, even if you allow free speech for all kinds of speech, including hate speech, I think religion, there might be still an argument for why religion still would be legal if you were being fair, because calls to violence is not protect. Um, hate speech is protected under free speech, but mm -hmm. outright calls to violence, sometimes people argue that that's not protected under free speech. Well, like incitement to violence, right? So yeah. that's that's another example of, you know, the, and, yeah, and, and then the uh, the other thing is that even if you just took the Quran, Jimmy, and you changed wherever it says disbelievers, 
if you uh, or gays or anything and you just change that to muslims and you put that book out and if (laughs) you had the exact same book nobody would be talking about oh let's have a metaphorical interpretation this actually means something else this is out of context they would just be looking at it they're like this is islamophobia everything they're saying about muslims is i completely agree i I was talking to armin once at one of the one of the video group meetings that we had on in like about mm-hmm. a social media campaign where we should do just that take verses on the Quran we take hadith and supplement whatever the press minority in there is yeah I, I did that actually Muslim. we get bans so, so like if fast. you did that if you yeah. did that with verse 434 and it was like when the Muslim is disobedient or you fear just fear disobedience <laughs> yeah first we'll stop speaking to him then then or or, you, or, or what you could do is Use the same excuses we use for the Quran to use for Mein Kampf. And we're like, listen, Hitler wasn't talking about all the Jews. <laughs> he was just talking about this specific Jews at that time. Yeah. And the Aryan race, we're all Aryan. He's not talking about a certain race. We all have this inner Aryan within us. And we just have to recognize that as a superior yeah. thing that we have to touch into. This <laughs> is something, it's, it's actually, I've, I've done both of these things. And they're a lot of fun to do because yeah. on, for the Richard Dawkins uh, the website, I wrote an article called... Uh, uh, no, those you're not taking those verses out of context, and it was about uh, basically <laughs> that's what it was called. So I just took one of the verses, the one Brilliant. that says that disbelievers are worse than animals. Right? They're the worst of creatures on earth. That verse, and I replace it with Muslims. Muslims are the worst of creatures, and then there was an argument, but that's out of context. I was like, okay, let's read it again, and let's put it in this context. Let's put it in that context, but it still sounds actually sometimes when you put it in context it makes it way worse actually way worse (laughs) so so it was uh, just to sort of demonstrate exactly what you're saying jimmy so the article is actually on i'll link to it in the description and the other thing was uh also um after this ali let's get to patron questions because we have a lot of them can i just say one thing because we're talking about the homophobia towards gay people in the muslim community and there's sometimes, and I'm not particularly proud of this thought, gentlemen. I'm not particularly proud of thought. And I know, but I know I'm not the only gay person or LGBT person of Muslim heritage who thinks it. So increasingly in um, the UK, we see spikes in hate crime towards the Muslim community. And we see increases in um, anti-Muslim bigotry. And sometimes when I sit down with a Muslim person and we're talking about uh, the dialogue of, 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 um, the climate towards Muslim people and how it how it has changed in the West, and they talk about, uh, you know, so for example, uh, the the increased threat of violence towards hijabis because they're they're more visibly Muslim than um, men or women who aren't hijabis, or the way that they overhear people talking about um, Muslim people in a derogatory way, or how they're worried that their name might give away the fact that they are Muslim and how it might impact perceptions towards them. In these conversations, I am quick to point out that a welcome to the world of homosexuality, (laughs) because we have been living this life in Muslim communities for eons now. So all you're doing is just tipping your big toe in the pool that is our water, because you haven't even got a clue as to how deep that pool is, for those of us who have been swimming in it for the last right last just to be clear you're not you're making a point to them just to recognize your uh, uh, discrimination against your community but you're not making the point that they deserve 
that kind no. of yeah what i just wanted is, to i know you're not, i know you're yeah, not yeah, I, oh because God. i know you i just want because some people yeah. might be listening and thinking that yeah yeah but, so listen everyone everyone should be very clear that i'm anti anti-muslim i'm anti anti-muslim bigotry, bigotry. negatives right yeah. um so um be clear about that what i'm saying mm -hmm. is our community's ability to empathize towards the plight of homosexuals was negligible. It was absolutely negligible. They didn't, they didn't see us as human. But as they're starting to experience in the West some anti-Muslim bigotry and the prejudice that goes with that, I'm able to draw correlations for them and say, do you see the stuff that you're going through? You guys have been putting gays through it for a hell of a long time. And you're way worse to understand. Yeah, way worse because nobody in the West is legislating for your death. But this is what you've been putting us through. And we were swimming in this for a longer time than the five weeks that you've been experiencing it comparatively. Right. So it's quite an interesting dynamic that I'm seeing in the West. And it, it affords the opportunity to have that dialogue. And sometimes, not often, sometimes it's taken on board. Like, oh wow, nice. I can see, yeah, I can see how actually that does make a difference, like how that would feel because I do experience that prejudice myself now. Uh -huh. So it's a quite an interesting um, conversation. Do you, think, so, do you think you would be ex Muslim if you weren't gay? I think that if I wasn't gay, the misogyny towards women in Islam and the inequality of women in Islam would have still made me not gay and would me not mm. Muslim. Yeah, that that actually gay. did it for me. A, a, a lot of it had to do with the, and I think you also said like with your, your mother and one of your sisters were the most understanding towards you. Mm. Um, so you also had good associations relatively um, mm. compared to the men. Uh, for you're me, it wasn't. Too, I mean, you're both too emotional. I went through. I went through this process through log logical means. I, I think yeah, that. I uh, think that's fascinating. I think that's so fascinating, uh, Armin, because I used to have that. Um, you know, how can it be that everything is written, and how can it be that God wants to torture everybody? But then I just saw that as inadequacies in my understanding. Mm. But then the stuff about women. It just used to rip me to my core and the stuff about gays used to rip me to my core in a way that maybe logic wouldn't have appealed. It was just like, mm. I, I, I think it's okay. a, also, it, I, I think they're both connected. So in, in my case, I think a lot of it was I saw the treatment of uh, mainly the women and I would look at it. I generally, like I lived in Saudi Arabia. My mother wasn't allowed to drive. My sister wasn't my sister. and My mom were both, they, they both have doctor in front of their name now and they were treated like, nothing over there but what happened is the reason that i uh, to me logically didn't make sense like the idea that I'm like okay these women they're the same to me my mom and my dad are equally qualified they both work they're both teachers professors my mother's taught me everything i know she basically used to help me with my homework everything mm -hmm. uh, and i used to think uh, like well, this doesn't make any sense why she see as as a muslim i would i, I would listen to you guys and think how arrogant could you two be to even assume that you could even comprehend what's right or wrong relative to the creator? Well, that, that, applies to, that applies to everything. But uh, what I'm saying, my point is that... To be fair, a, you, 
the, the logic anyway, and the emotion. So you what? what? You were Shia anyway, so we'd be thinking you're not even a Muslim. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so they'd be saying, that's exactly. Right. <laughs> like, Shia. Right. No, but I, what, what, my, my point was that I think that it's uh, uh, there are certain things that sort of trigger you. You look at this, you're like, okay, this doesn't make sense. So it could affect you emotionally in that sense, where you feel defensive. But at the same time, you like logically, this doesn't make sense. Why? Why is this? Why are these people treated worse than these people? You know. So then there's that, and then there's other questions. So I, I think all of it is a it, there's an amalgamation of uh, all. Yeah, this I think you're right. I think what resonated with me less less than that it doesn't make sense because it didn't make sense. Like when people like the reason is because they're women or because they're girls, that didn't make sense logically. Mm. Um, but I think the sense of injustice, yeah. I felt that more than the the logical um, issue. I was like, it was just yeah, for me, it was more like injustice. what was true. Yeah. Um, I, I wanted to get to some of the patron questions. It seems that I'm reading through them now. It seems we've covered uh, pretty much uh, all of them. Read them of and see if we covered them because okay, I, don't so, want, I don't want our patrons to feel like we're good. We ignored right. them. Right. So, um, uh, you know, one of the. Is, is that a good sign that we covered them or is that a bad sign? So, so there's two, two things we haven't covered and we're going to get to this. Uh, the first one is about. Um, yeah, so I'm saying we'd love Jimmy's talk at the secular conference in London. And so did we. Uh, and I'm really pleased he's on the podcast. I'm sure you will talk about his fantastic work with Yasmin's charity. Mm. And we will talk about that at the end. Um, I'm going to link to it as well. Yeah. Could you also ask him what he was taught as a child about possible punishments after death? So you spoke about that at length. Uh, did he start to lose his faith before coming out as gay? We, just on, like, we talked about that. And Jin D uh, said, what do you think of the moderate Muslims that say Islam don't commit the Lot story in the Quran? We covered that. Uh, Jin D also said, Ali, you are too loud. I, I corrected that by turning down my input volume. <laughs> input volume. Uh, okay, and then the sex change operation, Matt Hems. I'm interested to know if he, when he decided to do Islam, did he also start believing in God, stop believing in God at that point? So we talked about that we, as well. Yeah, we covered um, The moderate Muslims and lot. Okay, so, so one question that, and I think this is a really good question, uh, is from Stephen T.I. Um, and this I don't think we've covered. Uh, he says, uh, I, I want to help reduce violence against gays in the Islamic world, but as a straight white male, any actions I take can be misconstrued as colonialism or I guess Islamophobia or yeah, whatever. Yeah. So what what can I do to help? And and there is a, I, I know a lot of times what we say, listen, it's tough, but you just got to speak up. But these people, often when they post about it, they, their, their jobs, their colleagues, their families, you know, they, they call them bigots and they become very, uh, ostracized. So that, we hear that so many times. And for people that are talking about systematic racism, I think this is so common now that it's systematic now. Okay. It's systematic. Okay. So it used to be just racism, but I was, I'm, I, I'm at the position that racism against white people now is also systematic racism. Mm -hmm. Go on. Yeah. So God, that's a, that's a beautiful question, isn't it? Um, it is. Yeah. It's a really thank you, Stephen. Question. Thank you, Stephen. Yeah. Um, brilliant question. So I think you know. Let's be. Let's explore this a bit. I, I remember having a conversation with another straight white male about this, and I don't know for you guys. So just tell me if this is is if if this is just me because I'd be. I haven't really discussed this with other brown people. Um, when I started criticizing my culture, Muslim culture, Pakistani culture, whatever it was, 
the first few times, by few I mean many times, a white person said the same thing that I said, I found it really challenging. I did. I'm not going to lie. I think that initially when I started criticizing uh, the barbarity and backwardness of Islamic culture towards women, and then I'd heard a white person saying, um, Islam is barbaric and backwards towards women. I, f I physically froze like, Defensive, right? Like, what the fuck? That's so fucking racist. As what <laughs> they would say on that. <laughs> like, it's racist. It's racist. And, and I remember, I remember a white girl. I was having a conversation with her, and in this conversation, I was critiquing the barbarity and backwardness. And I use these words deliberately because I think they're very harsh words, but they absolutely surmise our treatment of women and gays in our community. So no. I remember saying to this girl about the barbarity and, and, and backwardness, but before I got to backwardness, I was like, you know, because some of our practices, they just, they just, and she said, yeah, backwards. <laughs> and I said, excuse me? Yeah. And she said, yeah, yeah, they're just backwards. And, and I was furious. I was furious that she would speak about my community in this way. I was furious that she would talk about brown people in this way because the UK has a historical legacy of colonialism within uh, But Southern she wasn't Asia. involved in that colonialism. <laughs> hang on, hang on, hang on. Yeah. She wasn't, she wasn't, she wasn't. But I mean, I mean, I think, you know, the reality, and this is, so back to, to go back to Stephen's point is I think the reason I'm highlighting this is because Unfortunately, you're not dealing with cabbages or letters or robots or objects. You're dealing right. with people. People have feelings. They have thoughts, right? Mm -hmm. And they're, they're not always the most logical thinking. They're not the most, always the most coherent. And frequently, they're emotional. So when she is saying to, when this white, when this white person was saying to me, even though I generated this conversation, yeah? So mm -hmm. I've started this conversation about, about our community. So when she's saying to me, yeah, it's just backwards, what I connect with is when I'm walking down the street holding my mum's hand as a child and people are calling us packy, yeah? Mm -hmm. Because we're barbaric and we're backwards. When my mum's got tattoos, like a bindi tattoos, and right. that's seen as backwards and barbaric. So... The reason I'm bringing this up is not because I'm saying, uh, Stephen, don't say anything, not at all. Um, right. What I'm trying to say is sometimes when we hear this, shut up, white, straight, male, your colonizers, blah, 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 blah. <laughs> even, mm. even people like me who actually I'm like, speak up, white people, we need your voices because right. the, the, the sound of, the sound of people championing the right of gays gays in the Muslim world is like two people somewhere in the back of the room, right? There's not many of us. <laughs> right. So we need some white people to scream or we need whatever color you are, stand for the right. human rights of all people and scream. But be understanding that when you say some of this stuff, it's going to trigger for some of us people of colors moments of racism that we grew or up real. Well, it's such, I'm, that I'm, were very real because the last time hang on Armin, okay. let me finish this so the last time somebody said that my culture was backwards they were spitting at my mum at the end of that Ooh. sentence 
Fuck. So did, did that actually happen? Saying to, yeah, yeah. Yeah, Armin happens all the time. I was walking with him. Yeah. And I've had that in London. But I mean, the thing is this. That's so on, sad. Alongside that, you have to juxtapose it with this. So it was disgusting in our youth, the treatment of 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 minorities in London. It was disgusting. Pecky jokes everywhere you go. People, you know, I remember once, not even that young, I remember in my early 20s, somebody leaning out of a car with a fucking megaphone and shouting Pecky at me as they drove past, right? And, um, and but that was... Can I, can I respond to this? I mean, I really... Uh, Go for it, go for it. But, but to me, this just sounds like some um, some white guy saying, "Listen, I, you know, we um, we were robbed by some black people, right? So you have to have an understanding that when we see a black person and we get scared, or we lock our doors, mm. or we get tense, or." It's because of the bad experience that we had with certain black people. No, I, th I think that's too simple. Uh, so can I? Can I? Why is that? Why I, think, is that I think that might be too I, simple. I think it might be how, too simple. How? But if somebody did, if somebody did get robbed by a black man, and right. they saw another black man, and they had some symptoms of post-traumatic stress, right? I'd completely understand that. I'm not saying that that's not understandable. The difference between you, Jimmy, and other people is that you recognize that this is an emotional uh, reaction, that you recognize right. that you think about it and you recognize that this is not logical and you that this is just a and you um, and you even and, and I think the uh, people from the other side should recognize that this emotion does exist and they shouldn't blame the emotion. But we ha the, the fact that you're, you know, you're matching it with a little bit of, with some logic that this doesn't make logical uh, sense is what, what we expect from other people, not to get rid of the emotional reaction, the emotional reaction. Yeah. You really don't have a choice over the emotional right, right, reaction. Right, right. Can I add another element into this? But I think, I, Armin, let me just, let me no, add one more component and I'll answer to So I think, I mean, like, and I think often people don't feel like they have a choice around their emotions and these things kicks in. But for me, you know, I think introspection is key. So when this woman is saying literally the same words as me and I'm getting triggered, <laughs> right. I have to be like, what's going on here? Why are you angry with her when you get, you almost gave her those words? Yeah. Uh, yeah, but but there's another component, is which is, wait, 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 there's another component, isn't there? That actually, but at the same time as, as a, a white person might be saying, um, your culture aspects of your culture are barbaric and backwards and it resonates with the racism we had in our youth at the same time as that's happening all too live and current we have the richard spencers of the world or we have actual racists who are still using that rhetoric to tarnish our entire culture as if it's all backwards and they are whatever. but it's but not there's not well, that's our sort of distrustful of lawrence but generalizing that experience that we have with some racist people to all white people is the very definition of racism no no but armin here yeah, okay so is, here's here's what i think is missing <laughs> one of the most here's here's what i think is missing in this the the conversation the analogy with the blacks and everything is uh, that one of the most sinister things about religions but compared to race is that it's not just about identity it's about idea there's an ideological element so here's what happens right there is a you're critical of the ideology but then when you get defensive is when the identity part kicks in. So I'll give you another example. This may be simpler and more uh, easy to understand. 
a, a girl, 16 years old, hijabi, you know, wearing, she's been wearing the hijab since she was a kid, born and raised in the UK, in London, say, or in Chicago, wherever. Uh, she grows up, she's, uh, she turns 16, she goes to high school, starts all the other girls experimenting with their hair and their makeup. Uh, she wants to do the same thing, but her parents make her wear the hijab. So now she goes and she's rebelling. She goes to the parents, like kids do, like, oh, why do I have to wear this? I don't want to wear this. She doesn't want to wear the hijab. She doesn't like the ideology of it. It's preventing her from fitting in. Then comes, you know, the whole, uh, the Donald Trump or the alt-right saying, yeah, you know, all these Muslims should be kicked out of the country or they should be banned from coming in or whatever. And suddenly that hijab becomes a symbol of identity. So first she was rebelling against the ideology of the hijab. Now she's defensive about the identity of the hijab. And that's what's going on. So when someone, when you criticize your ideology that this is a barbaric and backward culture, the scripture is shit, there's all these terrible things in this uh, religion, all these terrible ideas that I don't believe in. And then someone comes in, he's like, yeah, you know, he's right. You know, you guys are all fucking backward. Then suddenly, mm-hmm. what, but now what you're doing is that, you know, you're like, I agree with that. I'm against this ideology too. Now you're talking about me, you're talking about my people, you're talking about like the people who spit at my mom, uh, you know, and, and it becomes, you start getting defensive of the identity. And one of the most important things to do to sort of um, get, get rid of this conflict is to talk about ideology and identity as separate, to be able to pry the two apart and recognize it. For me, that's what did it, because I, I agree with you. I, I would sometimes get defensive as well. Mm. You know, and, and I'm really pleased. I'm pleased to have that. No, no I, I don't think it's just me. It's a, it's no, a, it's a, a, a lot of... What you guys are doing is different, because you guys are recognizing the fact that this makes no logical sense. It's emotional but, reaction. Well, that, that's that what we're emotional saying. reaction is... What I'm saying is that emotional reaction is often we don't talk about it. We're just... Which is that? Like this person from Muslim heritage is is trying to shout down the white person, but actually, what is that about? And it's what I'm saying is it's not unique to that Muslim See, person who's trying to shout and, you and down. And I actually it's, think it is all having that reaction. Some of us yeah. just assess it. And no, no, I, 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 I think it is logical. So if it was no, it's not. No, no, it's I'm, absolutely I'm, not. I'm, I'm, let me explain why. I, here's why I think it's logical. Uh, if it was just about an ideology and discussing bad ideas, like, okay, I believe in the Big Bang Theory, you don't believe in the Big Bang Theory, there would be no defensive element there. It would just be an argument about, you know, a, a different idea. If it was just about identity, that, you know, you're black or I'm white, then it would just be about racism and bigotry. But this is a really evil amalgamation and and of ideology and identity where you're criticizing the ideology. You're against the ideology, but you're mm-hmm. defensive about the identity part. That's you shouldn't where be defensive. The, being the, being no, defensive about the identity about part is makes no, 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 makes no sense. If it, we won't make this excuse about if it was the other way around. No, no, if no, somebody, no. If I'm no, saying no, analytically. I have analytically. to say this. I have to say it. And no, analytically, it makes absolutely zero sense. If I say we understanding how it's stuff, reality though that's I, how it happens say, no no i know it's the f- okay no 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 mm-hmm. that did when we say something is logical we talk we could talk about it in two different sense right like if we say uh, this thing in society causes more racism that's a logical statement to make but that does that's not making an excuse for that racism no right? no, no, no we're not making yeah, an excuse right. i mean let me yeah. make my point okay uh-huh. so if i say if i say this uh, this person's mom was raped by a gang of black men okay and th- that made him racist okay if we say, if we see the connection there between the fact that his mom was raped by a gang of 10 men 
Greek black man and uh, and him being racist. The fact that we understand the connection here doesn't mean that we think his position is logical. So, you could so when you use the word logical, you, there's two different things that you're talking about. You, the connection between these two events, we see the lo- we see that why this exists. So that that's the logical connection between them. But then the position that he ended up in. We don't see that as logical. So I think we sometimes uh, we use this word logical and s- switch it from one area to another as if, you know what I mean? So we would never say that this person's bigotry towards black people is logical. I, I, I get that. I get that. Right. I get what you're saying. But but what you're, uh, the, the difference here is that if you were talking that, if your analogy with the black men who raped the woman, I mean, that, that, makes, that, that makes complete sense. And I agree with it. But if... It wasn't just black. If all black men happened to have a common uh, an ideology that they subscribe to, if there was a we're talking about identity, you, you, uh, you, you, no, 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 we are. But what I'm trying to say is that with Islam, it's not just about identity. So if they had a scripture and they had a you value, you were separating system, that. You when you they right. and you were making for it was the identity part. So, so I'm so saying the identity part makes no sense. Let me let me phrase it again. Right. What I'm saying is that the idea that Muslims, right, oftentimes are rebelling against the ideology and simultaneously de- defensive about the Muslim, rebelling against Islamic ideology, but simultaneously defensive about Muslim identity as a culture, as a society, or as what they were, their birth identity. That is a, if you don't want to use the word logical, that's a, that's a reason. You can use the word logical for why it happens, but not for logical for the position that they have. Yeah, it's, it's not, it's not going to be. So in that sense, in that strict term, you're right. It's not going to be logical because, you know, it, it's a conflict. And that's why we find it confusing when we behave that way. So right. I think I really but, think but that is the underlying thing. That's going on. Right. Yeah. Even if but, you took it away from Muslims and somebody said, oh, Indians are barbaric because of the Sati practice where they used to burn women. Yeah. And right. a white person said that to me, I would have got triggered by that because it would be like South Asians are still. Uh, the, the identity aspect. Yeah. That's a, that, that's yeah, a so part I think, of it. I'm wondering whether what it's really about is my inability to separate people from, um, cultural practices. Right. So right. by somebody criticizing, south asian barbarity of burning women who are widows what i'm making that about is you're criticizing south asian people but really they're just criticizing that practice yeah and i think that's what it really is about actually so when when that girl was saying oh yeah some of the practices are just backwards which was literally the word i was going to use i made her (laughs) i made it that she was calling muslim people backwards rather than calling uh stoning a woman to death which is a muslim uh, which is an Islamic, mm-hmm. Islamic practice, right. uh, barbaric. So I conflated the two. I think it all kind of goes back to that, actually. However, back to Stephen, what can you do as a straight white male? Do exactly what the rest of us are doing. <laughs> yes, <laughs> like, thank you. Basically, just keep on doing what we're doing. Speak up at every opportunity. Um, I do think that actually, if you have access to platforms and you can get... Uh, people from the community onto those platforms, that's more powerful to shape the listening uh, of that community than having a white person stand up and right. speak. I do think people are more likely to listen to me as a, mm. uh, uh, as the gay of Muslim heritage than they are likely to listen to a straight person. 
So that means, that means that means straight white men should talk more to normalize yeah, straight white men talking. But if I'm not available, <laughs> go ahead, go ahead and say it, Steve. It's no. all good. Uh, like, this is by far the most common. It's the the most common question I get at uh, whenever I do a I talk. I just want to say one more thing, guys. I want to say yeah, yeah. one more thing. Because we're talking about race, and I want to add this nuance in. So. When you are growing up as a gay person in a Muslim community, it's like this constant state of being afraid of violence or, or, or intimidation or any of that ilk. Um, however, and you know, but at the same time, you're worried about the racism that your parents faced and having mm. to experience that racism. But the irony is, and so, you know, so there's some demonizing of the white community uh, as diaspora Muslims. You know, we're like, oh, the white community and, and their treatment of us as brown people. But the irony is that when you, if you are outed or you come out to your Muslim family, then you're ostracized and cast into the white community because that's what the wider community is in the UK. And then it's that white community that end up taking you in as one of their own and um, accepting you for being gay. And it's a very interesting shift to growing up, to being afraid of racism from the white community, to then step into the white community who are absolutely okay with your homosexuality, but the fear actually comes from the Muslim community. Mm. The threat mm -hmm. of violence is now coming from the other community from which you stepped out of. Right. That's so, amazing. So, yeah. Here's the thing. If, if, um, if you are made to feel like you can't say something because you don't have the right skin tone, you are a victim of racism. Okay. Mm. And the fact that Ali says that this is one of the most common questions that gets that how could I, how can I say these things? I'm white. I don't want to say these things because it sounds racist. Oh, definitely. Yeah. Definitely. The fact, the fact that that's so, such a common question <laughs> makes this not just racism anymore. It's now the the thing the, this whole systematic racism that this left is talk about this is now a systematic form of racism I don't think the frequency of a question makes something systemic at all um, so I, think I haven't need to expand I've, that point to well, I, I, I haven't it's true well yeah but I, mean, I would what, just say this I think one yeah, one of the things that's come out of this conversation is actually and, I, and like I said, I've never discussed this with brown people before, right? So mm -hmm. I didn't know if it was just me. So I'm pleased that, Ali, you said you had the same thing. Because uh, actually, me, a lot of people, I think, a lot of people nowadays. I think uh, if you're right, you're right. And also, I applaud your nuanced discussion of hijab, which I think we don't approach it with that level of nuance, which is mm -hmm. it was really nice to hear that. But I think if a, if a white man is going to criticize, um, uh, or stand up for, for, for gay people and criticize the barbarity in our culture, make sure that the delivery of that is in such a way that it's clear that you're criticizing practice, not people. Mm. Well, that's that I mean? voice goes because for everybody. Yeah. Yeah, it does go for everybody, but let's face it, like we could get away with it more because mm, you're dealing with people. So we shouldn't, but that's, that's, I'm talking about real life, you know, like you've got right. your ideals that actually, let's pretend we're all got the same. Yeah, that's some things you own, like that's there's no the reality. The reality is that black I can people say can say the N word to each other uh, all the time, but I'd, I, I, I don't want to use that. Gay word. people can say the F word to each other all the time. But yeah. it's, to me, to me okay, I, know, I know this is, world. you might disagree with this, but to me, this sounds like black people that are 
told like, you know, because there's a stereotype against black men being aggressive, be even more mellow, be even more friendly than you would want to be just to go against that stereotype. Like basically no. kicking in your behavior. That's separate. Like, I think that's separate. No, I think every time you make, every time you are made to adjust your behavior because of your skin color, then I'm kind of like, what the hell's going on here? Right. You know, that's, I think, I think what I'm saying is this is actually that I should be equally as deliberate with my words as Steve should be. Yeah. Right. In that when we're doing our critique, we should both be deliberate in, um, pointing out the, the, the criticism of practice or ideology. Right. Yeah. Being clear that we're not, um, (laughs) we're not, we're not criticizing. We got the best however, question. Okay. Right. However, if I don't do that so well, <laughs> the repercussions, <laughs> the repercussions for me compared to Steve are very different, aren't they? Yeah, they are. And I think are. we can't get away from that. Right. right. So Sang, I wish Sang, it wasn't Sang, the case. Okay, Sang in the live chat is asking, what about Asians? Do we get a free pass because we're yellow? <laughs> I don't know. I don't think anybody really thinks about Asians. Two Asians. I feel I so mean, bad. Do, even, do Asians even count? Like, do they count? <laughs> and, uh, first of all, like, first of all, oh, like, we're like, kidding. So, like, we like, love you, Asians. <laughs> Armin's wife is Asian. You're actually like East Asian. So in the UK, we call you East Asian. South Asian. Asian yeah. Asians. Here, we mean Asians uh, are very racist. Yeah. So, 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 uh, uh, Jimmy, I know Asians. it's, it's really, uh, late there or early. I, so I, I want to start wrapping up. Um, we have two things. One of the things that we want to close on the, on the, your work with Yasmin. Uh, before that, I wanted to ask you one th- really quick question about, um, and I, I guess this could be a longer conversation, but just briefly, um, there's a poll that but when you look at polling about acceptance of homosexualities, uh, homosexuality in the UK, um, there's a, very famous poll where zero percent said that they were accepting of it on the other hand uh, in the u.s it was a recent poll uh, a major poll that showed that for the first time a majority of uh, u.s muslims um 51 percent uh, actually are uh, accepting of homosexuality before and i i was wondering i was reading this and i was wondering well you know all that alliance with the uh, the left, you know, embracing Muslim community. Maybe I wonder if that has rubbed off or if Muslims are feeling pressured to, uh, you know, uh, feel or, or not, I guess not pressured, but if Muslims are being um, influenced in a way by the left to adopt some of the left's values in that sense, which would be, I guess, a good thing. But wh- what is the difference between the UK community of Muslims and the US Muslim community uh, where uh, when it comes to homosexuality, the, the, you know, you have a majority of people in the U.S. accepting it, where, whereas the numbers in, mm. in the U.K. are dismal. So do, first do of all, the sense of pressure, um, I really like that word pressure that you used because I think it's important for those of us in Western liberal democracies to galvanize people like Steve so that that sense of pressure is applied. It's, it's constant, I agree. Yeah. Actually. And I think that's such an important thing, and that is how we'll make changes. Historically, we've been um, sheltered and buffered from that sense of pressure through concepts of uh, not being appeared, to, not wanting to appear as racist, etc. So, you know, back to Steve's question: just speak up and and mm. say what needs to be said because it applies pressure to our community. We can only hide behind this guise of Islamophobia for so long. 
before people realize it's absolute nonsense and it's not mm-hmm. the same as anti-Muslim bigotry. To Guys, your question about... All right, go ahead. Sorry. Go for, no, go first. No, first. carry on. No, no, go So to your question, I'm not so uh, embedded at all in any way, shape or form in the Muslim community in America. So I couldn't really uh, comment to that. What I would say is that from what I've been told is that your national identity in America, like people are American first before they're anything else. Um, I've been told that's a lot stronger over there than it is over in the UK. So Mm -hmm. in the UK, we're definitely Muslim first before we are anything else. Like if we are even anything else, but we are definitely Muslim. And that is, um, so if it is true that actually Americans are more American first, better integrated uh, into their communities, then it makes sense that you're Muslim community. Well, it's, it's actually one of the highest uh, the socioeconomic groups, whereas in, in European countries, Muslims tend to be among yeah. the lower. Indeed, so indeed. They're, they're so actually... I think that, 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 that um, turning inwards of our community to Islam and only to itself does buffer it from having these external pressures placed on it. Right. Uh, and it's a lot more, it's a lot less integrating than it is in America. However, as much as I applaud, here's my two claps for Muslims in America. Why are we always the flipping bottom of everything? And then why do we celebrate it? So like when it comes down to something like gay rights, we're like, oh my God, 51%. So now most Muslims. <laughs> like the terminology. No, not, not only that, but more than evangelical Christians. Right. Yeah. And so then we're going to scrape out the bottom half, of yeah. the, yeah, it's like we scrape out the bottom of the barrel to use of some other community to use as the benchmark against ourselves. And I'm sick to death of us being the bottom rung on women's rights. I'm right. sick to death of us being the bottom rung on LGBT rights. Like, and that's in, that's in Western countries. still country. despicable. Yeah. And Why can't we, like, you know, be first at, at gay rights somewhere? Why well, we know we why. First? Or why can't we lead the way in women's rights first? Because of Islam. have exactly that. I, th- yeah, I, I think, mean, you know, for me, one of the things, this ties back to what we were saying about gay Muslims and actually they're providing shelter. For me, one of the fundamental issues in our community, when I look at every other community, their ability to self-criticize with intellectual honesty is significantly heightened compared to ours. So their ability to say, actually, uh, what's going on with our community as Jews? What is working? What isn't working? Uh, and what do we need to tailor to make it work better? So that introspection allows you to identify development opportunities, and then we work on your development opportunities to right. elevate the the, I, the society. I, one sec, one sec. Right. Our, our standpoint, which is Islam is perfect, you know, that's the global standpoint on Islam. Islam is perfect. You cannot really be a part of our community if you don't think Islam is perfect. So if your standpoint is that Islam is perfect, we don't have the ability to even identify with intellectual honesty what the development areas in our community are. Because let's face it, the big development opportunity in our community is Islam. It's like, it's what Fs everything up. It's what messes so many things up in terms of gay rights and women's movement and women's education. But if we can't even look at Islam and say, maybe this isn't perfect, maybe there's some things in here that we need to change, then how how can we grow? I don't understand. The fact that Muslim uh, Muslims in Western countries or non-Islamic countries are more 
are ahead in uh, uh, in their values and in, in liberal values than um, most Islamic countries. Uh, to me, shows that it's not Islam that is making these Muslims uh, less Islamic, right? Like it's it's, it's pretty obvious. Yeah. I didn't say it too loudly or too boldly, but when it comes down to LGBT, the sad truth is West is best and white is white. Like that's really the sum of it. It wow. really is. Like when you, when you compare that to anywhere across the globe, the social movement for, um, for LGBT people, that's the summary of it that we need to get Muslim majority countries looking at the LGBT movement in the West and saying, how do we emulate this? Because right. they're trailblazing the way. Yeah, yeah I mean, well, part, part of that history, part of the history of colonialism is that they they introduced anti-slavery to the, yeah. to the Islamic countries, right? Yeah, the, a lot of people don't recognize that. Uh, by the way, I, I just recognized Mike in the live chat is pointing that out. That I've been saying this wrong all the time. It's not systematic racism; it's systemic racism. Systemic, yeah. You guys yeah. should have printed out. I've been keep, I've keep I did, I did. I said I didn't seem to fix your question. Okay, systemic. Yeah. I, and I wanted to. Um, I mean, what was your, what was your last point, Armin? Colonialism and introducing. So colonialism. The other one on colonialism is this idea when in Muslim communities we try, or as gay people in Muslim communities, we try and act like the homophobia in Muslim societies is due to white people's colonialism. Like we need to let that shit go. Yeah, <laughs> if you think it. that, if you think that the homophobia in Pakistan is due to <laughs> a legacy of colonialism, you are absolutely deluded and divorced from the reality of Muslim gays. Because if in India at the time they introduced a law that every Friday you had to eat pork, you can bet your bottom dollar. Pakistan would have got rid of that in two minutes' time because there would be an appetite to remove that law because right. it doesn't conform to Islamic standards. But quite simply, the persecution of homosexuals is completely in alignment with the Islamic appetite for how homosexuals should be treated. This has less to do with white people's colonial laws and more to do with our absolute hatred of gays. I mean, I mean, um, slavery, for example, was not seen as an evil. It was is completely normal and accepted around the globe until the British Empire decided to introduce it as an evil and force it upon other countries as well. I mean, a lot of people see, well, white men are, when they think about slavery, they think about white men, right? But the interesting thing is that slavery was a norm everywhere until white men decided that it shouldn't be the norm. Yeah. I mean, that's interesting as well is... You know, we keep on getting this, you guys must have heard it so many times, that whenever you're critiquing Islam with a Muslim person and you bring up something that is like, you know, such a blindingly <laughs> obvious criticism, and they say, oh, that's not Islam, that's not religion, that's culture, that's culture. And I'm so sick to death of this defense of it's not religion, it's culture, as if these two things are absolutely separate entities. Right. Because that's not the reality. Like when you look at, the headscarf or you look at the veil these garments didn't just magically appear at the same time as a quran came down which didn't even happen right so mm -hmm. they they absolutely existed in these um geographic regions before and then they became um incorporated into the religion right. and we have so many instances <laughs> so like if you look at yemen 
and the the phenomenon of child bride marriage and then you had politicians who wanted to stop that phenomenon and say actually we can't marry girls who are eight years old and then you had the religious clergy come out on mass and say you can't stop this eight-year-old marriage it's sunnah um, muhammad had aisha blah 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 so you can see there a direct impact of religion having a direct impact right. on culture. Right. And then, I mean, as you mentioned, slavery, which was an absolutely fine religious practice for us, we were fine and dandy with the slaves, mm. it was all good. Then, when we had white people applying a global pressure on our communities to say, slavery has to stop, and we had, you know, Egyptians, politicians saying, actually, this is our, this is our religion, um, you can't stop us, it's our religion, it's part of our culture. But eventually the pressure was so much that Muslim countries stopped having slaves above board, like who knows what was going on underground, right? So when they agreed to, to outlaw slavery, that's another, another um, incident of culture impacting religion and religious right. practice. Yep. Because now when you speak to Muslims about uh, slavery, they're like, oh no, Islam is perfect, it, would, it doesn't have slavery, that meant prisoners of war, blah, 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 and a hundred and myriad of excuses that they come up with. So yeah, this like, idea that, freed all the slaves. And, but the thing is, like, all of these people were all freed, all, no, he didn't free all the slaves. I know, I'm saying that that's their Muhammad claim. Muhammad all the I'm slaves, that that's, it's always a black person. Yeah, that's what they say. To me. Yeah. Always. always. Can I, like, so, so religion influences culture, people. religion influences culture, and culture influences religion, so much so yeah, that sometimes is, yeah, so much so that the lines between them sometimes becomes very gray. Uh, but I don't even know what the line is, Amin. What is the line between them? Because I don't think I'll tell you what the line is. When it's not theological. But here's the thing. Um, the, 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 the problem with that culture, oh, this is culture, not religion, even, even if that's what is true, that's not a defense because culture can also be very shitty and destructive. I mean, like, you yeah, know, the argument is that because that, because it's a, that, it's a that, bad that culture, you're pointing out like slavery, right? I think you're pointing out, I mean, the, your critique of Islam, that men beat their wives, that's culture. Because. That's not Islam. Well, that, so okay. therefore, uh, there's the thing: now, culture, yeah, culture evolves. About, if it's in your culture, book, it's your religion. Yeah. Culture yeah, evolves. Yeah, yeah. Culture can. <laughs> culture evolves. Culture can change. Religion dogmatizes it and freezes it in time and makes right. it forever. That's one of the things. And the other thing is that saying that it's culture, not religion, is like saying, "Well, it wasn't falling off the cliff that killed you. It was hitting the ground. It was a ground that killed you." So that really is the dichotomy. There's no dichotomy. There, there's way too much overlap to actually really. I mean, that's why. That's why we have the term Islamic culture. Right. And, yeah, and that's uh, what I mean. It's like, what right. is, what is, is, is the religion is the culture is this right. idea that religion, that Islam came down into, um, into a geographic region and then just brought only Islam to that region. It's farcical. Even the way that you pray with your bum down and your ass in the air, it's like the same as, <laughs> Um, supplication in so many other different, you know, you know, the restaurants are. The, I think the restaurants were the first people that introduced the hijab, but the purpose was of it was completely different. Do you know the, the initial purpose of the hijab was because the restaurants think like dead things should never hit the ground because ground the the earth should never be the, dead things are really uh, unpure and the, the earth is pure. That's why when you die, they, they don't bury their bodies. They give it to vultures to eat it and take it to the sky. Air so burial. the reason why you have a head covering is because you want to make sure that 
your hair, which is dead, doesn't hit the ground. Yeah, that's interesting. That's <laughs> quite a Jesus. These guys, like they, yeah, they really came up with some weird shit back then. Right. But anyway, um, so let's uh, let's wrap this up. Um, and uh, I wanted to add one last thing to Stephen, like the way that I answer it. You know, when I was beginning to say a long time ago that uh, it's one of the most common questions I get is that I, I tell people I'm like, if you can't speak up because you are at work and you feel like you're going to get fired or something like that, then then find people in the movement. Right now, there's a lot of people. There are people who, like myself, like Armin, like you, uh, like Mario Namazi, uh, like uh, Salman Rushdie, like Ayan Hirsi Majid Nawaz, uh, all of these people. Yasmin Mohammed, Sarah Yasmin Mohammed, Sayed. Yeah, uh, yeah all uh, uh, who, are, who are part of uh, this, and, and there are many of you. Uh, I'm not yeah, XMNA. Now, now I'm going to feel bad if I forget somebody. I know, I know. So, so um, the thing is, at least, at least you have... remember the surnames. Um, can I just say yeah. your surname Stephen, is like... London? Okay. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> can I just say, um, Stephen, go down to Gay Pride and wear Allah's gay T-shirt and carry out Allah gay Allah's gay. Right, right. And then hang and out. If anyone with stops the... you. Just say secular jihadists and Jimmy. So uh, there you go. And hang out with the brown people. Just be in their hands. Look, I'm with these guys. These are the guys I'm supporting. There you go. You're done. We had a white guy marching. We had a white guy marching at the women's march with some council of ex-Muslim um, uh-huh. people. And they were all carrying a hijab on a stick at the women's march um, yeah. to, in solidarity with the Iranian women. And then some woman, I think she kind of attacked the white guy. Because he had a sign saying no compulsory job. He had a sign. It's not funny. I don't know why I'm laughing. It's 5 a.m., guys. I'm sorry. It's <laughs> uh, kind of funny. You can, you can laugh. But he was walking. No, because he was elderly as well. Um, he was elderly. Like, the guy was like proper elderly. Like, And he was walking with the, the CMB members who were all holding their white hijabs on a stick. And he's holding a sign saying no compulsory veiling. And then somebody called him like a Nazi and, oh and tried to hit him with a sign or something. A girl tried to attack him with a sign. I can't remember the details. I'm sure I told you about this army, like over messenger yeah, yeah. or something. All right, right, and, like, right. and the guy was like a proper old man. Like, and uh, <laughs> oh, so, so Stephen, just pad up, pad up. Like, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> where yeah, you go with your head. Head. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah, just pad up, wear a padded vest. And if people attack you, mm. don't let go of your sign. Like, <laughs> So, so Jimmy, tell us about. Um, the, don't take any risks that you're not comfortable with. Yeah. So, so let's yeah. Tell us quickly about the you know free hearts, free minds uh, campaign. We've heard it from Yaz. Let's hear it, uh, yeah. from you as well so, in terms of what you're doing and how people can find out about it. And if there's anybody who needs to, like we do have an audience in Muslim majority countries as well. So, if anybody's listening, and and uh, how can they get in touch? How can they connect? It? Sure. So the scheme was set up to give people who are struggling with apostasy uh, in Muslim majority countries, uh, give, struggling with, and you know, and, and it having consequential factors on their life, like leave them feel, feeling disempowered, uh, feeling anxious, feeling depressed, like just not enjoying their life really. Um, and so I work as a as a life coach. Uh, and I run a practice with a nutritionist and a psychotherapist. And so I was wondering about how I could help my community to use my coaching skills to help people to step into uh, into their power and into their voice, essentially. So for me, I think Islam had me be a victim and a victim mentality for quite a long time. And then 
beginning to understand that actually I'm responsible for my life and despite whatever circumstances are going around, I have the ability to impact uh, positively my own life. Uh, really was a transformative position for me. So we we decided to offer this coaching um, six sessions across an eight-week period to people who are in need and they can contact us via the Free Hearts, Free Mind um, website, which I think you'll put a link in. Um, we are seeking funding as well. So the entire scheme is uh, funded by uh, donors who have been very generous. So if individuals are able to donate, please do so. Uh, the website as well to help fund the project and we've had some really amazing amazing incidents so a lot of the time when i start working with people um the conversation can be about suicide intervention uh mm. so I'm, I'm trained in suicide interventions wow and um moving people from that space to a space where oh my god i think i might be able to get married and find a husband who's also an ex-muslim you know, uh -huh. taking somebody who's in this space where they couldn't really see an avenue um, around life to taking them to somewhere where they can actually see that despite the circumstances they're in, there is hope, there is way to have a life. And then also, I think for many of us in the West, definitely, you know, we're very social media adept and savvy, and we know how to reach out to things like XMNA or CEMB, etc., so sometimes the, the the people we work with in this scheme have become really withdrawn and really isolated. And it's about getting them to connect with atheist groups or ex-Muslim groups online so that they can start connecting with other people and understanding that they're not the only one. And yeah, just helping people move forward generally. In but did you ever... That don't offer them a space. Oh. Oh, we lost early. That's good because yeah. now I can ask my question. Um, <laughs> um he's gonna come before he comes back um so do you do you get hurt your like do you emotionally when you're talking to these people all the time about their problems do you think like it scars you yourself this is coming um so i i i, I have a therapist a myself yeah. yeah because there's a lot that i see that is really yeah. impacting um definitely um, but I've been doing that for, for a while anyway. Right. Uh, however, I think it would be accurate to say that the level of intensity of my work increased when I started working with ex-Muslims in Muslim-majority countries compared to the experience over here, because Ali there was a lot more to see. Our, our CEO at Atheist Republic, uh, Ali Jackson, she does the sim similar kind of work. She talks to a lot of people about uh, their suicidal thoughts, and she uh, she talked. Uh, by the way, yesterday she came out as uh, she came out of the closet as gay. Uh, yeah, and she was she was crying, and she was she thought that she's gonna like it's ten years after being an atheist, she still th felt like people are gonna hate. She didn't feel free to come out as gay until, which is so uh, strange. And she was how is her cultural background? Uh, Christian, very, very Christian. Uh, but, 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 anyways, but she, she was, uh, she talked to um, ex, uh, an ex-Muslim for a while uh, in, in a Muslim country. I forgot where it was. I think it was Egypt. I'm not sure. But um, he was gay. And after a very long time, um, she, she also secretly told him, but nobody else other than her own brother and, um, ex-husband that she's gay too. But, uh, after a lot of time talking to 
him. Um, he one day messaged her uh, that I can't live like this anymore. This is my last message to you. I'm going to kill myself and goodbye. And she's never heard from him since. And she thinks that she, she, what if she made a mistake? She feels like, what if she could have said something maybe that she didn't say? And she was, um, she was really hurt by that. So she might want to have, I think my, I might introduce her to you. She might want to talk to her about that yeah. because, yeah. How yeah, did so you one was of the first like reasons? Yeah. So I think one of the first reasons I started getting training in, um, in, in suicide intervention was because I was the first person on a scene when somebody jumped off a building. And, mm-hmm. um, so just dealing with that left me in a, uh, a really, I don't know, I guess a really, a really weird headspace that left me feeling like if I, if I could identify when people are being suicide, feeling suicidal and had the tools to be able to intervene, I could literally save people's lives. So I think like that experience and the person who, 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 who committed suicide, I used to see that man just walking around, walking around, walking around, but I'd never had any suicide intervention training up to that point. So I wasn't able to understand that that was the kind of behavior that would be a warning sign, you know? Right. Um, so for me, there was a part of me when I was, I was holding his face together um, and like blood was pouring out of, uh, out of him at that time. And then after he passed away in, in that incident, we were unable to save him. But the amount of guilt that I had was astounding. Even though I did everything I could, even though everybody around me was like, Jimmy, you were amazing in, in, in the incident, like the way that you dealt with it. Um, you didn't freeze. You just got in there. You got on the phone to the ambulance, was talking to the paramedic, was trying to move his face and his body into the right position. But even after all of that, because he didn't survive, the guilt that I carried around for a long time um, was... Move his face? Was what do you mean? Was his... So he jumped from the sixth floor and he landed on the first floor. And, uh, you know, so the first thing is like airway breathing circulation. You need to make sure that the airway is clear so the person uh, can breathe. And so I was on the phone to the paramedic saying, actually, I don't think his airway is clear. So I had to right. move his face. Away. Was there, do you know the reasoning? Face. Why? Do you know why? Yeah. So it was redundancy orientated. Yeah. Um, and so, like when I redundant, like when people lose their job, when oh, they're redundant okay. by an organization, that's a, a, a massive contributor towards, well, you know, statistically one of the suicidal uh, thinking phenomena. So, um, yeah, it was around that. Okay. Yeah. So, wow. so when you think about, so when you were talking about your friend who she hasn't heard from this guy and she's questioning what more could she do, what more could she do? That's quite a classic sort of survivor guilt type thing, I think, where, you know, you're still alive and you're just questioning, like, what else could you have done? Um, I think part of why she thinks she's responsible is that she she thinks that she might have given him the impression that she's she's in the closet herself. I, I wasn't at that time. And she will one day 
come out and it's, she will be able to eventually, she will have some backlash, but there's no laws against them. She's not going to get killed. Mm. She's going to be able to find a woman and be with her at some point eventually. But he thought that for him, there is no out. There is no hope. He will never be able to have that life. And what's the, what's even the point? Mm. So I think she, she, why a little bit why she feels responsible is because maybe by sharing their experiences, he might have felt that. So that's why she feels a little bit guilty. Yeah. So and this is, it, it, yeah, completely, completely. Uh, I can completely echo with that. And this constant thinking of what else could I have done? What else could I have done? But I think when you do, I don't know if she's done any suicide intervention training. When she you do degree do psychology. That, Oh, you did. She did. She did. So, you know, there are some stark questions, aren't there? That you know, what is the what is the extent of your capability? You have to be realistic about that sometimes, don't you? And does somebody have does somebody have uh, the right to talk about or think about taking their own life? Like, where does that right end? Where does, where does it right? So when you when you go on the training, they kind of explore this stuff. So if she hasn't done that, when I went on my training, that helped me a lot. So, so the answer is sometimes you think maybe, maybe think maybe saying suicide uh, is not the answer. Should is maybe a dogmatic view that we have. Um, so I think you know you've got you've well so you've got countries anyway where you have assisted suicide, haven't you? So right, we Canada countries, yeah, where it has everywhere. Oh, do you guys have that over there? Yes. Yeah. So, so you have that, but I mean, for me, the question for me about in these conversations is very much about do you want to end your life or do you want the pain to stop? Oh, wow. That's such a good way of asking that question. That, yeah. When you get clear on that distinction, that's where you have opportunity. Okay. But then if you ask that question, sometimes the conclusion is that the only way to end the pain is to end, like there's no other way. So that's the conflation, isn't it? Of those two things. So actually right. let's start off with, do you want to end your life or do you want the pain to stop? And then you get the separation and they're like, actually I want the pain to stop, but I can't see how the pain can stop without, without. ending my life. Well, right. okay, let's have a conversation about that. But what you've done is open up a conversation right. and you've made a distinction. Uh, in that well, would, would, wouldn't, wouldn't it be also, isn't it also possible that you introduce them to this idea that the only way to end the pain is to end the life? Yeah, so the research doesn't support that view. Okay. That talking okay. about suicide helps people to, right, right, right. Uh, or encourages people to commit suicide. Quite oh, wow, that study is going to be very helpful to, to talking about it on average help. So, so, so don't feel guilty. Yeah, so the silence and taboo around suicide right. operates in exactly the same way about silence and taboo about anything else. Right. Is it's more likely to cause problems than it is to fix it. That's so why in Japan we, suicide rates are so high because people go, talking to us, uh, talking to somebody about your psychological sh um, uh, problems is seen as shameful. Mm. Right. But also, I think say? within not just within Japan, but like also, also, also that's why it's more within men than women, right? Because more, women talk more within ethnic minorities, uh, than in, um, so if you, if you live in the UK, ethnic minorities are more likely to suffer from mental health issues, but are less likely to seek mental health support. Mental health support. Yes. 
but because also they have also the stigma and taboo. But because I think a lot of Eastern countries uh, or Middle Eastern countries and Eastern countries, they see the psychological problems as you being mental. Right, you're being yeah. crazy, so that's why you you would never go see a psychiatrist because that means like there's some that means that's a taboo, right? But Stigma. I think in, just, yeah, in just Western play culture, harder. Just I mean, play harder. like if you're depressed or yeah, you've got mental just, health, you just, just play harder. Yeah. Or or for men also, <laughs> just man harder. up, just don't be a sissy, just don't stop yeah. crying. But like, so that's why I think that, I'm not sure, but I think um, some people suggested that's why suicide rates among men might be higher because men don't talk about their feelings as much as women mm. do. Is that yeah okay? Yeah, th- yeah. there's a actually a really tragic story. I think it was in 2013 of Irtaza Hussein, who was uh, an ex-Muslim. He was active with the Council of Ex-Muslims of Britain, who actually very publicly uh, committed suicide. Mm-hmm. He posted a picture of him sitting on a branch <laughs> uh, with a noose yeah. around his neck. And uh, I remember we were all yeah. watching it as it happened. We were getting follow-ups, and uh, he j- just didn't make it out alive. So uh, this is a it's a it's a reality. Yeah, it's a very real thing in our community. It's a very real thing, which is why whenever I can have these conversations to help people make that distinction, mm-hmm. that actually, you know, do you want to end your life? And it never is a case of, yeah, I want to end my life. It's always, actually, yeah. I, want to feel, I want the pain to stop or I want the sense of not having any power in my do life you think, to stop. Do you think the answer sometimes is... So, like, there's, would you go as, say, uh, as much as saying that, as, that suicide is never the answer? So I've never, I've never had somebody say, uh, yeah, I, and I've had lots of these conversations. I've never had somebody say, actually, I want my life to end. Because if the answer is, I want but, my life to end. But do you think there would be situations? Like, what is the reason, right? So if, 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 what is the reason? So if you want your life to end, what is the reason? So, for example, my mom wanted her life to end uh, much earlier during her cancer treatment than than my my dad, right? And I think she should have, if she had the full option, she would have ended up suffering a lot less, right? Yeah, but so that what that does then is actually the truth is is it's not about if you ask the question to her, to your mom then. Um, because it's about the inhibitions of our medical capability, isn't it? So if you ask the question to your mum then, actually, do you want your life to end or you just want the suffering to stop? And the answer was, well, I just want the suffering to stop. Well, we've got this medication that will stop the suffering. Then you're, again, separating out the conflation. But in that instance, there is no medication. There is no. Uh, it would be, yeah, she wants, but that's why you have euthanasia, isn't it? That's yeah. why you have. I mean, in Canada, we like. I have. It's weird. I have this. Uh, so I used to work as a pathologist, Jimmy. So I used to do a lot of autopsies, very, very close to death, um, for many, many years. The dozens and dozens of them. So I, I always, uh, and at some point, I realized that thinking about death. I mean, not necessarily suicide, but thinking about death is. Uh, I guess this is a weirdly a, a a positive spin on it is uh, it kind of keeps you motivated in life. So if I know that no matter how bad things get, I always have a way out. So I do have a sort of a suicide plan. If any, I get to the point where terminal disease, things are really shitty. I know, I, I know exactly what I'm going to do. I know how I'm going to control it because I, I want to yeah. be in control of my life. I want to be in control of my death. Now, if I go to a therapist and if I ever tell them that, yeah, have you ever thought of suicide? And I say, well, yeah, I have a totally, I know exactly what I'm going to do. If that time arises, um, they would admit me in the hospital, but it's not because I'm 
depressed or anything. It's not because I'm suicidal even. It's just because I, uh, the fact that I know that there's always a way out makes me not get too overwhelmed by really tough situations in life. Well, don't try what I did. I, I actually no, no, no. did. I did actually, I'm not going to try it. I just, I, I'm just, no, I know, I know, but I'm just saying one, one with thing dying. Then I think uh, a lot of other people are. In, right. In I, um, so, I, I actually I, did attempt to. Yeah. I oh, yeah, yeah. When I saw your video, um, uh-huh. I, I still tell people about that. Armin actually, I'm like, actually, uh, we'll, we'll link to Armin's uh, interview with Seth Andrews, uh, in the, in, in the description as because well. Somebody so asked a question story. about punishments, didn't they? And one of your Patreon people they asked a question about punishment. And that was always on my mind was about the grave closing and then my ribs being squeezed into each other, <laughs> serpents coming and biting me five times a day for every prayer that I missed, um, burning in hellfire, having to drink my own pus, eating the crops that would get caught in my throat, skin being failed for me. Okay, you're you're, ma- you're making me hungry. Hanging now. from hooks, like I mean, like <laughs> that was that was. But you know what? If you did, you think somebody, about that? Did you think about it a lot? A lot, a lot, a lot. And even after I apostatized, for a long time after I became clear that I was an ex-Muslim, because that started happening when I saw videos of like Ayon Hirsi Ali and Maryam Namazi, I was like. Oh my God, this is what I am. Like, it's okay to say this stuff about Allah. It doesn't exist. And then I think for a lot of people, when you first apostatize, when you wake up the next morning, you're surprised you made it through the night. And like, because you thought you might get killed in your sleep by God or it doesn't exist. Like, um, so even though you're a disbeliever, you, you're, this fear is inculcated, isn't it? Like it's bred into you. So even when I was... Uh, an atheist at the start, I was still scared that what if I'm wrong? What if I am wrong? And what if, what if there's a hell? Right. Um, I'm going to be there. Mm. Uh, Jimmy, I, I got a, um, I know it's like super late. We could talk to you for hours. I feel but like everyone's flagging. I know. Like, I know. Yeah, I know. We're all like, okay, now we're <laughs> So before this, I, I just want to say, I, I think you're doing amazing work. I think that one of the best things that you do is you have the ability to really, really articulate um, and explain things, uh, not just in a factual kind of linear kind of way, but really the, uh, the the explain your experience in a way that people can really emotionally connect with it i mean i was absolutely just you. hearing you talk at the secular conference and then in this podcast it's it's just absolutely riveting and compelling just hearing you the, the analyze as you tell your story as well and, yeah. and sort of do it so i, I really really appreciate you you coming thank coming you on. i appreciate it i appreciate I it it's I also I also want to say that I do think like when it comes to the ex-Muslim movement really needs to have a huge focus on when it, gay rights and especially in the Islamic um, Islamic world and I think that you're one of the loudest and most uh, important uh, ex-Muslim in the movement that people need to pay attention to uh, and I'm really grateful for having you in our movement. Right. And, and I have a lot of, I correspond a lot with uh, people in Muslim majority countries who happen to be LGBT. A lot of the atheists there are, are gay and lesbian and trans. And, um, just, you know, I, I think that listening to you, I, I hope that empowers them and, and lets them know that, you know, there's, there's definitely something you can do with it. 
Uh, people in the live chat are saying Jimmy is amazing. Thank you, Jimmy. Oh, thank yeah. you, people. I think one thing that we could benefit from actually as a movement is sometimes I feel like um, the ex-Muslim movement has a, a very much a socio-political rhetoric and dialogue. And the lexicon that we use is all about things like in-groups and out-groups and uh, about ostracism and shunning. And actually what I worry about is that for people of our age, that's kind of okay, we've made it through a lot of the trauma. But for, I think for a lot of the younger people, our conversation doesn't really touch on how it feels often enough. Like what mm. is that feeling of not wanting to wake up in the morning or get out of bed? What are those feelings of feeling a tightness in your chest? And people don't necessarily understand that they're suffering from depression if they don't understand what the symptoms of depression feel like. People don't necessarily know that they're suffering from anxiety if they don't know what those symptoms of anxiety feel like. And so sometimes I feel like actually we need to talk a bit more about the human experience of ex-Muslims rather than more, uh, rather than just like the socio-political narrative and political discourse. But, right. Yeah, I think you do a great job of both, actually. So, so basically, you're touching on uh, there's like there's two different sides of this movement. One is the activism and the outreach. But I think what you're touching on is the community building and us getting together and talking to each other and supporting yeah. our experiences yeah, and stories. Yeah. And also, yeah. I think about the youth as well, because um, just, you know, I just feel like sometimes we're a bit older where we've made, we've worked through a lot of the stuff that we had to work through and we found each other. Right. But let's just make sure we don't forget about the young people who are Ex up. Exactly. So and actually lead the way off to us. Actually. That's why when people uh, tell us like, Oh, why are you being so repetitive? You've been saying this for this many years. They're like, well, because we have new people. We're like, you can't, mm. right? Like, come on. Like you, it might be repetitive to you, but we're constantly meeting new no, people. It's constantly growing, and, and you do have to, the basics, we right. do have to keep on repeating. Sometimes we lose sight of that, and we start getting into the nitty-gritty, but right. it's very important that we keep coming back to, to, to the, the basics. basics. Yeah. Okay. So, gentlemen, uh, um, I just want to say it's been a complete honor, actually. So, you're two of my uh, heroes. It's really, really uh, nice to be here. Having uh, the honor is beautiful. all ours, man. Yes. I, I think that this is, uh, it was fantastic. I, I would, I, I, Pride is coming up, everybody. Uh, you heard the stuff in this podcast. Get those allies gay posters out, those signs out, and just go out there. Um, if you're not Muslim or you know, if you're white or whatever, and you just go find Muslim. Yeah, go go find the ex-Muslim crowd at your at your local Pride and yeah. march with them and show I'm solidarity. And yeah, let's let's do it. Let's make 2018 the year. Especially if you're a Muslim, go break the stereotype that Muslims are all sensitive snowflakes. Go yeah, have yeah. a Allah is gay sign and say I'm a Muslim and Allah is gay. Right, right. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Anyway. And if anyone stops you, just just pretend you are Muslim. See what happens. Right. <laughs> <laughs> That's always fun. That way you'll you'll protect yourself in some cases. Um, anyway, Jimmy, thank you very much. Thanks. Uh, right. Thanks everybody for listening. Thank you, um, Sang. Thank you, Mike. Thank you, Blonde Infidel and Gene B, which is a he, by the way. Thank you, Steve, clarifies. for your amazing yes. question. Oh, yes. Yeah, that was a, was a fantastic question. And, Thanks, uh, um, and uh, to anybody who's listening to this on audio now, 
um, after it's come out, you know, join us, become a patron. Just go to secularjihadist.com. As little as a dollar, you can become a patron. You can watch this whole conversation on video. You can live. watch all future, yeah, live. You can watch and all future. You can future join the live chat discussion. Yeah. And ask questions. And, and uh, you also get to be part of the private uh, Facebook group. And uh, you can engage with all of us uh, there and actually engage with a lot of really cool people. So yes. um, do that. Thank you, all everybody. Right. Thank you, guys. Take care. Thank you, Jimmy. Thank you, Armin. The Secular Jihadists have been made possible thanks to the Illuminati and the covert support of Israel and the CIA. That's what we have been told, but we haven't received our checks yet. If you like what we do, please support us. Share the podcast with your friends. Write and tweet us with topic and guest suggestions. Or head over to secularjihadists.com and give a dollar or more for exclusive access to live video. Have your questions read and answered on the air and more. Till next time, may the flying spaghetti monster be with you. Thank <laughs> you.